On this episode of the podcast, we are once again talking to Jeremy D. Smith. We are talking to him about the second half of his uh, hardcore journey. I'm not sure where the first one ended, but if you're a fan of Jeremy, you'll want to listen to this. He's got a new band called Tuning, which recently uh, put out an album, but they just recorded a second album, which uh, should be out soon. Enjoy this interview with Jeremy. Um, me and Jeremy have a long history, and he's had a pretty interesting hardcore journey, so I hope you listen to this, check it out, because he's got a lot of good stories to tell. And uh, listen for his uh, insight on Metallica. That was a pretty decent part of the interview. Also, we have a guest appearance from Bill Wickham, also known as Farside. Uh, he threw his two cents in, and uh, I feel like that was good too. So check it out, and I hope you enjoy. of the HMNI Fanzine Podcast. I have the one and only Jeremy D. Smith live in Buffalo, in the studio. We had a Skype interview before with him. I did a second Skype interview with him, which got lost in translation. So we're going to do this interview with him, which will be kind of a, a, kind of a continuation of the first interview I did with him, where we covered the first part of his uh, hardcore career, in quotations. <laughs> I've got Gus here, and Jeremy, say hi to uh, the people. Hello, people. How you doing? I'm back. I flew I flew to Buffalo just for this podcast, <laughs> just so I could hang out with Mark and, and the guys. So... Farside, uh, former bandmate of Jeremy, is around the uh, studio. He's, he's hovering right now. <laughs> he's hovering around the studio. I want to step on your interview, so I'm just going to hang out in the background. Oh, yeah. you know. He's going to lay in the cut, as they say. If you need me. <laughs> I'll tag you in if I need you there, partner. <laughs> so the first thing I want to talk about with you is uh, what you've been up to out in California. You have a new band, Tuning. Tell me a little bit about Tuning, how that came about. Uh, well, in the last episode of the podcast, which was like we did like two years ago or whatever, I was talking about how I was, it was a little over a year ago. I was I was talking about how I was trying to get a band going, and um, you know I didn't know if it was going to work out, and I was hanging out with some some dudes who seemed like in, in, like they were interested, and uh, from that came Tuning because it would be like one guy would say he was really into it. And then when it came time to actually get together to, like, you know, have that first practice, a guy would drop out. And then another guy would say, oh, I want to do it. So uh, eventually I, I uh, met up with this, this dude, Murtaza, who played drums. And uh, we started uh, working on songs. And slowly but surely we kind of piecemealed band members together. And, it, you know, when we recorded, it was kind of like, me, a bass player, and Murtaza, and like the guy who was going to play guitar was there, but he was he had been so busy that he didn't really know the song, so I ended up playing guitar in the recording. And then as soon as the recording was done um, and we were mixing, like 
we got another guitar player, uh, this kid Matt, and uh, Adrian, who was our guitar player, was like, they got so pumped that, you know, we practiced like once after we finished recording and it was like, okay, let's book shows. So that's what we started doing. So are the other members of the band, are there any like, you know, notable ex-members of in those bands? Uh, band? I, I don't know about notable, but Matt is in a band called Discourage, which are pretty cool, which are another Bay Area band. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he used to be in a band called Dying For It from Reading, even though he doesn't live in Reading. Uh, he was like one of the guys who joined that band. Um, he was in that band for a little while, which is pretty cool. I like that band a lot. Um, and uh, our drummer, Murtaza, was in a pop punk band called First to Leave. Mm-hmm. Um, they were on Lobster Records. You Lobster. might remember Lobster Records as the folks who put out Yellow Card. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They recorded a record. He's got some interesting stories about when they, record, they recorded their LP with uh, Jay Robbins. And he's, he has some interesting stories about that. They um, went to D.C. to do it? Yeah, yeah. And we're, and, uh, he, was also, he also sung for a band called Until Your Heart Stops, which is a little heavier of a band. They did, they did an LP, but I don't know. I know they did a lot of regional touring, but I don't think they did a full U.S. Um, Adrian, our other guitar player, hadn't been in a band in like 15 years, but he didn't, you know, it was like he hadn't been in a band since high school. Really? Because, um, you know, he just, he moved from where he was comfortable in Oxnard to the Bay and, you know, didn't really know a lot of people. Um, but uh, we all kind of came together. There was an American Nightmare show about a year ago uh, where Matazza was like, oh, I know this this guy who, who's really interested in, you know, what we're trying to do. And he's got a buddy who wants to play bass. And this guy, this guy Ben, who's from Minnesota, he's, I don't think he's, Ben, I, I think he was in some indie bands at some point, maybe some metalcore bands in the early 2000s, but um, nothing nothing, nothing that I can remember the name of because I don't think – I think they were, you know, pretty pretty firm in, many, in like Milwaukee or wherever he's from, you know, hmm. Minneapolis, Milwaukee area. Some, some Midwest country. <laughs> <laughs> so the Republic of the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah, but he's from some Midwest – he's from a Midwest state. I want to say he's, he's from – Minnesota or Milwaukee, but he's lived in the Bay for a gazillion years too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's it's been pretty good. It's been fun. You guys just played the one show. Yeah, we played we played a show December thirtieth in Santa Cruz that was really really good, and we're playing. We have a couple shows coming up in March, which will be pretty fun. Uh, we're playing the Mutiny on the Bay Festival, which is good, which is like fourteen bands or something, with uh, Strife and Fury headlining. That'll be fun. And then we're playing again in Santa Cruz, I think. Oh, we're playing Santa Cruz on my 45th birthday, 17th of March. How far is Santa Cruz from San Francisco? Oh, not too far, maybe an hour and a half. Okay. I'm not familiar with the geography. But where, from, where I live, from where I live, <laughs> from where I live, it's two and a half hours. Because I live me, in North Bay. Yeah, if you told me Santa Cruz, I would think that's like by L.A. somewhere. No, 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 no. no. So that's what I know about California geography. Um, so... What's kind of the idea behind tuning? Like what, like, you know, lyrical themes, what's the music like? Uh, music, you know, it's melodic hardcore, you know. Um, uh, it, a lot of, like, uh, like our record that's coming out, like people that are, like, 
have heard it and stuff. I think it has like kind of like a, a Pacific Northwest sound, like a Stay Gold or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just writing like the kind of melodic hardcore that I've always kind of ri- written. Yeah. Like when I come when I come up to it on my own, like when I'm not like like when I did my last band, Modern Problems, I was like, I just want to sound like Uniform Choice, so I wrote songs like that. But this is more like, oh, I'm just writing kind of songs that I write like um, naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was talking to Paul from Dead Hearts, and he kind of he said, "Well, it kind of sounds like musically, it's kind of like in between the control and Dead Hearts, okay. like melodic hardcore, like that. It's fast sometimes. It's it's more you know emotional and melodic sometimes. And the lyrics are akin to more of the lyrics that I wrote for Dead Hearts. They're you know they're more about relationship stuff and yeah. emotional stuff. And you know I'm I'm not I'm not going to write like a straight edge song for that band because it just the the music doesn't seem like it facilitates that kind of message. Yeah. So, so you're singing, right? Yeah, I sing. Okay. So, um, what kind of? Well, I mean, what what do you what do you want to ultimately accomplish with tuning? Like, well, the big thing that like I, I like at our first show, I was like, you know, saying how like, you know, what needs to happen in hardcore is, is something that that hadn't been going on for a long time. It's like communication. Like, band, you know, for years I saw bands, how they would introduce their songs would be putting out the song to their friends. And that's fine. People can have friends. People can say this song is going out to, you know, you know, fucking Joey Grail Nuts or whatever. You know, they can, they can put out their song. No, that dude. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and that's, and, that's, and that's fine. But, like, nobody, like, nobody seems to be facilitating dialogue with each other. And, um, you know... I wanted that to kind of happen, so I wanted so between so before songs. Sometimes I try to give context and and, and talk about what they're going to be about, and you know, um, you know, I, I talked about it at our first show how um, you know in my I, in my career in higher education for the past ten years, uh, the past year was the highest numbers of suicide ideations that I've had to been a part of, and stuff like that, um, because you know we, we live in very anxious times and, and people are are kind of responding to that on a level that, especially young people, that we haven't really seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talk about that kind of stuff, and, and you know, uh, I write songs about anxiety, and songs about relationships, and, you know, I just want people to kind of not necessarily confront those things, but know that it's okay to talk about those kind of things. You know, we don't just have to talk about how hard we are and how tough we are and how we're going to go do this and it's us against them. You know, sometimes it's us against ourselves, and we need to talk about ourselves being against ourselves to kind of get through it. And that's that's kind of like what I write about and what I talk about. Do you think, I mean, it's been one show, but do you think um, that people are receptive to it? or? Uh, the, yes. At that show, it seemed like people were very receptive to mm-hmm. that, except for like three dudes who walked out. Um, so I don't know. I don't. Well, I, you know, it could be a million reasons. It could be that the stuff I was talking about brought up some stuff for them, you know, mm-hmm. that they didn't want to deal with, or it could just be, you know, we're here to fucking bosh, whatever. But it was like three dudes out of a crowd of sixty, you know, yeah. that you know, and I could tell who I wasn't connecting with, but I could, but I could also tell who I was connecting with, and that 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 was good, you know. Mm-hmm. You could just because you lay out a buffet on a table doesn't mean everybody's going to eat the fucking chicken wings, you know what I mean, like. You, you, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. It's is that doesn't mean you, you don't put out the food because you want everybody to partake. But if if they don't want to partake, that's their choice. Fair enough. Yeah. Um. So you guys have a you have an LP coming out. We do. So, 
I guess tell me about that. Um, so when we were like in the mixing phase, I had a pretty good rough mix of it. The final mix is much better, but we had a pretty good rough mix of it. So I was just sending it to friends and, you know, hey, check this out. This is my new band. You know, we just recorded nine songs. Um, I think it's pretty good. And, uh, I was just sending it to like, you know, friends and old contacts of my old bands and stuff like that. And, uh, I'd recently added uh, Andy from Cortex Records in Germany uh, on Facebook. And uh, I was just like, hey, I have a new band. You know, I used to be in these bands. Do you want to check it out? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. I sent it to him. And a half hour later, I start, I just get a ton of messages from him. Like, this is great. This is like, this is like really great. I really, really like it. I have a friend who has a label. And is it okay if I tell him to contact you about this? And can I send it to him? I said, yeah, that's cool. And then, like, an hour later, we had an offer for an LP. That's cool. Yeah, it was, like, awesome. really, really quick. And uh, so I was like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. And, um, you know, uh, Billy, who's doing the records, very well respected. And um, he seems like a really nice guy. So it's like, shit, we'll, we'll do it. And that's that's fun. And Cortex is backing it in, in Europe. And it's, it's a lot of interest from Europe right away. Another label from Germany, from Karlsruhe, um, they they also had kind of reached out and like asked what our plans was were and stuff, but it kind of fizzled. They, they do a lot of reissues for American bands, like Madball and Integrity and stuff. But yeah, we, we didn't we didn't really hear back from that guy. And next thing yeah. you know, we're doing uh, we're doing Unity Worldwide. So that was fun. Is it coming out only in Europe or is it coming out here too? No, it's uh, so... It's um, Cortex is distributing it in Europe, uh, and then the Rev HQ is dis- distributing it here. They have a they have their own cover color. They have like a yellow vinyl, and then Coin Toss Records here in the U.S. also has their own color. They have purple. Um, and Coin Toss in the U.S. is doing the U.S. version of the CD, mm-hmm. and then uh, there's uh, another label in Europe whose name escapes me right now, uh, who's doing the digital release and the CD release in Europe as well. So, sorry, I have a little bit of a cold. So, uh, last time you guys talked to me, I was just gotten over a bronchitis or something like that. But You're this just sickly, man. I am not sickly. <laughs> you should see me a week ago, man. I could throw a football over the moon. <laughs> Good to hear. So, like, you know, I was asking about the plans of the band. Like, what do you like? What do you plan to do? Like, kind of, st- do you want to do any sort of touring? Yeah, we're well. We're talking about Europe. You know. 10 days, two weeks in Europe, something like that would, yeah. be, would be something that's feasible. I mean, excuse me, I have to blow my nose. Um, you know, it has to be feasible with all of our all of our lives and stuff like that. But, yeah. you know, festivals in Europe, two weeks in Europe is cool. Yeah. Uh, the good thing about being in California is, like, you could go play, like, four very different shows in a weekend. You know, and, and, and only a few hours apart. So we're going to do a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, okay. We have some potential stuff coming up. We're doing a run at, on the West Coast in, in May. It's only like four shows. But, you know, we cover a lot of ground with that. California is wonderful like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so I think we'll uh, step back from tuning and work a little backwards. Sure, yeah, no worries. Let's uh, let's talk about your band before tuning Modern Problems. Ah, uh, yes, the flash in the pan. <laughs> Which you started here in Buffalo with a bunch of, you know, 
Buffalo people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about how Modern Problems started. What, what year was Modern Problems? Uh, 2014. Okay. So tell me about it. Um, so I just had surgery, so I was just like kind of sitting around a lot. And what right, type of surgery? Uh, well, I've had several surgeries. I had a weight loss surgery that was okay, but then uh, then I had thyroid surgery that fucking threw that. I had tumors on my thyroid, and it fucked that all up because now just I go I bounce between you know hyper and hypothyroid all the time. Um, yeah, so I was sitting around in recovery, and I'm, I'm, I'm playing guitar, and I just started writing. And I was like, you know, nobody really sounds like Uniform Choice anymore. Nobody sounds like Unity anymore. You know, early Ignite did, but they don't sound like that anymore. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that I wanted to, like, I got interested in writing those kind of songs. I wanted to make sure that it sounded authentic, as authentic as possible. So I wrote a bunch of songs, and then I realized that I didn't fucking know anybody who could sing like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even close to like that. Yeah. And so I said, well, let me give it a shot. And uh, I asked uh, Drew, who was in Malfunction at the time, who's in Candy now, and a bunch of, a million other bands, but he's having he's having some wild success with Candy. Um, and Drew said, yeah, he was into playing drums. And uh, Jason, who is in bands with Drew, he was in Better Times with Drew, he was in Tied Down with Drew uh, to play guitar. And we couldn't find a bass player for the longest time. Like we recorded our demo, me and Drew played bass on the demo, and then. Uh, but Tim, we had already asked Tim Fletcher to play bass. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just didn't have time to learn the song, so Tim was our was our bass player. Uh, it was a strange band. It was a strange band in in the vein of like Southern California, you know, hardcore like Beautiful Choice, and. Uh, People really liked that band right away. I don't know about in Buffalo, but outside of Buffalo, people really liked that band right away. So we were able to do a lot of stuff in a really short time. What did you put? Tell me about what you put out. Uh, I know there were a few things. So we we put out. We didn't have to put out our own demo because uh, Nick, the singer of Coke Bust, liked like the songs I put online or something, and so he put it out as a cassette. Some guy had like. Portugal put it out on cassette. Some guy in like Germany put it out on cassette. The first demo, they went through all those. Um, we put out the identity cassette through Black Dots Records here in Buffalo. We put out the Foolish Times cassette through Climb Aboard Records in Canada, and then all of those, the demo and the other two cassettes, all got put together as an LP called Foolish Times that Not Like You put out from New Mexico. And on top of that, our original demo also came out as a limited 7-inch in the UK, uh, which was pretty crazy. And then we did a compilation song, which was also the first song of the demo, but remixed on Reaper Records for their New York Hardcore 7-inch compilation. Uh, Mike Gitter from Triple X Fanzine, um, who's also like a huge like industry A&R guy and stuff like that for like the music industry, he reached out for me to me, and he was like, "Dude, your guys' stuff is great. Can you record uh, a song, a cover song for the compilation that's going to come with the Triple X Fanzine reissue? Fanzine that Bridge Nine's doing." I was like, "Yes." He's like, "Can you do Uniform Choice?" I was like, "Yes." So we did. We recorded. Uh, we recorded "Once I Cry" by Uniform Choice, um, and then we also recorded three other songs that, not like you did, RLP was going to do as a seven inch, um, but. 
literally like a week after we recorded that, maybe two weeks after we recorded that, Drew quit. Okay. So that was that. Was that. We played – we did three cassettes, an LP, a 7-inch, two compilations, and uh, a digital EP. Um, and we only played five shows. They – you played DC. Did you play anywhere else outside of Buffalo? Nope. We played we played Buffalo four times and DC once. The DC show is probably just because of the vibe and like what was going down was one of my favorite shows I've ever played. And I've played some great shows. Don't get me wrong, but that show that show in DC was like just it was just you know all, all cylinders were firing for the band mm-hmm. and like you know the crowd was really receptive and mm-hmm. we did really well. So you guys broke up after Drew quit. That's what happened. Yeah, because, okay, so what happened was Jason quit after, like, our fourth show. Mm-hmm. And, but the band continued because I play guitar. I was writing the songs anyway, so, like, we could st- we kept recording after he quit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, and, uh, you know, it was like, oh, we got to find a guitar player, right? Well, Strange kids are few and far between. I guess there's a bunch now here, but at the time it was looking pretty weak. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was, it was getting tough. And so what ended up, you know, usually it's hard to find a straight edge drummer, but Rapaway, who used to be in Every Time I Die, is still straight edge, and he's a dude, and he likes the band. So he joined, and Drew switched from drums to guitar, which made sense. But after Drew quit, it was like, well, now what are we going to do? And not only that, by that point, when he did that, the end of uh, the summer 2015, I was already looking for jobs out of state. And I was, I'd already done some job interviews out of town mm-hmm. uh, when that happened. So I kind of knew that, like, I was going to, I was trying to move out of Buffalo. So let's just let the band kind of die. Okay. So. On, on that same note, why did you decide to leave Buffalo? Um, I didn't feel like uh, the career opportunities were here, mm-hmm. and I still kind of feel like they're not for what I do anyway in higher education. Because, uh, and I also didn't, you know, I had been a director of security. I was director of security for a corporation here for a while. I was decor- director of security for college for seven years, and it's like I I don't want to be just a director of security anymore. And not only that, like in Buffalo, it seemed like the same guys kept plugging into different different colleges every couple of years. Mm-hmm. So one guy would be here, then he'd be over here. I mean, there's some guys that were stable, but, you know, it seemed like everybody bounced around, and those were the guys getting jobs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a family. I have three kids. And so I was like, you know what? The career opportunities here, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, cemented in staying in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I started looking for – Things that would not only advance my career, uh, but also my skill set, my experience, and my education would work with. Um, so I went for some interviews in Pittsburgh. I thought I had the Pittsburgh job, but I don't know what they went with. They, I don't know what happened there. Uh, Pittsburgh, Jamestown, Idaho. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I got the job in California, um, Idaho called me and told me they wanted to fly me in for the. So I'd already done Skype interviews with them. They wanted to fly me in for an in-person interview. And, you know, I was their candidate of choice and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, cool. I don't want to live in Idaho. <laughs> I'm moving <laughs> to California, to the Bay Area. <laughs> and, good. you know, the day that I landed in California for my interview and got offered the position, I went to celebrate that night by going to see Infest and Excel and Despise You. So it was like, yeah, this is where I need to be. 
Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is like, shit's happening, and, you know, it's cool. Yeah, based on, like, your, your Instagram, it seems like there's a lot of good shows out in California. Yeah. Dude, it's the Bay. I mean... I don't know. It's this the Bay the Area. This, you guys, this is the buff. Yeah, you guys, like <laughs> Buffalo. I mean, think about how big San Francisco is. Yeah. You know, the San Francisco Bay Area is massive. Mm-hmm. And, like, I live just as far away from San Francisco as I do from Sacramento. Mm-hmm. So if a tour skips San Francisco and goes to Sacramento, or if, you know, I don't, you know, I, I'm going to miss the Oakland show or the Berkeley show, and I'm going to miss the San Francisco show, and I'm going to miss the San Jose show, but I can make the Sacramento show. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. um I, I, you know, and the punk scene, the hardcore scene, and the metal scenes are so huge. And those are my three scenes of choice. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, every tour hits hits the bay, you know, every tour. You know, bands do one-offs in the bay, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, like, I went and saw jo- Jawbreaker play Gilman three weeks ago uh, in less than 24 hours notice, you know. Um, and I'm not even a big Jawbreaker fan, but I went because I thought – well, that's the venue to yeah. see him at, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I go to Gilman. Gilman's only – on a good day, I get to Gilman from my house in 45 minutes, yeah. you know. Um, usually it takes about an hour, but uh, depends on traffic. Um, so I go to Gilman all the time. It's it's easy to get to from where I live. You know, getting to, getting to San Francisco can get a little dicier because traffic's always shitty and, you know, there's a lot of twists and turns you got to go do. But Gilman is like, I just, you know, shoot down, get off on Gilman Street, and I'm there. So I go to a lot of shows there. I go to a lot of shows in Oakland too, because East Bay, East Bay hardcore is awesome. Yeah. Um, what's the deal with Gilman? Is there do you have to? Is there like a membership thing there? Yeah. Well, that's how they. That's how they. I don't know if it's a cabaret license or whatever they do. Mm-hmm. It's a. It's a club. So everybody who goes to the shows there are members. Okay. So that's probably that's. I, I'm assuming that that's how they defeat, like. Uh, Certain is like their workaround for being an all ages venue, because okay. it's a cl- it's an all ages club because you're a member. Yeah. So I'm assuming that's how they they you know get certain permits that are allowed to do what they do mm-hmm. uh, for so long that they've been doing it. Right. That's cool. So um, what do you think is what's you know what's been your favorite show out there like of each variety like hardcore and metal. Uh, for metal. Well, I saw Metallica play a club show. I remember that, and that was fucking phenomenal. Yeah, and that was just like, I like I never thought in the world. It, you should tell a story about that. Okay, all right. <laughs> so, um, Metallica. I, I Metallica when I was a kid was my favorite band. Like, you know, hands down. Then the Black Album came out. I saw it in '89. Matter of fact. Uh, coming up in like two weeks will be the 30th anniversary of that show. Saw my Damage Justice, my favorite band. Like, no question. Could could not challenge that Metallica was the best band in the world. Then the Black Album came out and it broke my heart. The, 1991 was like the worst fucking year for music for me because the Black Album by my favorite band Metallica came out and fucking sucked. And Blind by Corrosion Conformity, my second favorite band at the time, came out and that fucking sucked. And I was just like, music is dead. I'm going to go to death metal shows. Like, and that's pretty much how I started going to death metal shows. Uh, because the music I loved was dead and death metal was music. But anyway, so uh, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, that Metallica album came out. And I was really digging a bunch of the songs that they released on it in a way that I had felt connected to Metallica in you know 
almost 30 years. Uh, and just like really like like half of that record really hits all the flavor points for me. So I was like, fuck, I'd really like to go see Metallica. I think I'd like to see them play this song, these songs. And I kind of realized that they were ignoring everything from the Black Album until the new album. And I was like, that's cool with me. You know, I like the Black Album now. I like the hits. I don't like any of the deep cuts because I think the lyrics are real shitty on those songs. But I like the ballads. I like like the big radio rock hits now. The time I did, it took me a long time to get into those. And I actually don't mind a few songs off Load and Reload. St. Anger's a wash. That record sucks. And I like two songs off Death Magnetic. But those records, I don't need to hear those songs. I don't. I, they don't have, they, you know, sure. You know, I hear them on the radio. I'm like, okay, give me fuel, give me fire, give me debit, debit, die. You know, I'm, I'll, 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 I'll leave it on. But um, I was really psyched that Metallica was playing thrash metal again. And uh, I liked the record. And they announced that they were playing uh, a show at the Fox Theater to benefit the Alameda Food Bank. And they did a whole bunch of those that year. They played like a whole bunch of club shows. I think they did Toronto. They did LA. They did they did New York. Um, I think they might have done Chicago. I know they did the UK. They did a whole bunch, and they were all to benefit you know food banks in the area. That it was around Christmas time, and they had a lottery for the fan club. I'm in the fan club because Metallica. I got to be in the fan club, and uh, I didn't win the lottery, so I, I didn't have a chance to purchase a ticket. So then they went on a general sale, and my Ticketmaster app crack, crashed. So I was like, fuck, I'm, not, I'm missing this opportunity. So I started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, well, how am I going to get to see Metallica? How am I going to get to see Metallica, you know, a band that I've just re- rekindled my love affair with over the past couple of weeks? And, uh, you know, I got to figure this out. So I started thinking really hard. And uh, I thought, oh, well, Cliff Bernstein and Peter Medchik, Hugh Prime, that's their managers. How about I write them from my, from my work email as the director of campus services, you know? <laughs> like, I'm going to write them, like, I'm new to the Bay. Metallica's my favorite band. Haven't seen them in 30 years. I would love the opportunity. I was like, but where the fuck do I find these guys' email addresses? Like, they probably have, like, fucking, you know, new metal in the leather pants, like, fucking emailing them every fucking week. You know what I mean? Like... Like, yo, we're a rap rock band from, you know, fucking Champlain, Illinois. Check this shit out. You know, we want to be we want to be managed by the same people who manage Metallica. They probably get bombarded with that shit. So, like, if you, like, email, like, info at Q Prime or whatever, it's going to be, like, some intern or something. It's going to be, like, deleted, you know. You know, it's going to be gone. So, it's like, fuck. So, I just started putting in Peter Bench email, Q Prime. And if you remember uh, back in 2015, what was a big or 2016 what was a big deal was the John Podesta WikiLeaks. Remember yeah. that all yeah. the John Podesta yeah. stuff. Um, well, uh, Peter Bench, his wife was the head of Hillary, conservatives for Hillary, Hillary Clinton, so she had been emailing John Podesta, and they were going to some party or something like that. And she had cc'd her her husband's email, mm-hmm. and those had, and people probably don't even know who the fuck that is. Yeah. You know, they see yeah. Peter Bench at Q Prime, and they're just like, whatever. You know, who's that? But me, I knew who that was right away. I saw that WikiLeak, and I was like, fuck, I'm emailing him. <laughs> and so I wrote up, I drafted up a letter, real nice little email, sent it to him. Less than 24 hours later, Today is your lucky day. Peter Bench forwarded us to your email. It was from Metallica HQ in San Rafael. Oh, 
And they were like, make a donation to Alameda Food Bank. We'll give you as many tickets as you want. Wow. And so I was like, 100 bucks for two tickets? They're like, absolutely, no problem. So I, I donated $100, got two tickets. Me and Matthew Cotty from Monster Squad went. We had a fucking blast. They were so good at that show. Like, so good. So good. They opened up with Bread Fan, the bungee cover, into Creeping Death, into Blackened. Like, that is like the fucking opening right there. It was great. It was really good. What was the capacity of the place they played? About 2,000. About, nice. about the size of the town ballroom, roughly. Okay. Yeah. That's cool, man. Yeah. yeah. It's good to hear. Oh, it was... It was... <laughs> I think about that show all the time. Yeah. Like, all the time. Like, couldn't believe I was there. Every song they played, I loved. Every song they played, I loved. Is that the last time you saw Metallica? No. I went and saw them the following year um, at the Band Together... Uh, uh, benefit for those who are uh, who are affected by the fire in Napa and Sonoma counties, because mm-hmm. uh, we lived, you know, the closest the flames got to us was about five miles. Mm-hmm. It's pretty scary times, um, but I I was ha- I had a lot of anxiety coming out of that uh, because not only do I have to did I have to worry about 178 live-in students, but I also had to worry about my own family uh, who lived you know less than two miles from the school and five mm-hmm. miles from the flames and. Um, you know, I, had a, I had a really hard time uh, kind of decompressing from that. Um, and Metallica announced that they were doing a benefit. And uh, I bought a ticket and went. And they were fantastic. I mean, it was a huge arena, you know, yeah. 20,000 people. It was AT&T Park, you know, yeah. where the Giants play or whatever. Um, and it was sold out. It was, you know, packed. Um, they played with the Grateful Dead. It was weird. Really? <laughs> and Rancid. It was so weird. But... Um, they came out and they did like their like radio friendly like thing. So they did like all the hits off of the Black Album. You know, they only played one song off the new record. Then they did they did you know they did all like their big songs, but they sounded great. They were like really good. They were tight. Mm-hmm. You could tell that they were passionate about doing it. That was awesome. Yeah. Then I saw them this past December. I probably should have skipped that gig. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's so they were okay, and I think if I hadn't seen them, I'd be okay with it. But how with how tight they were, the two shows, I because I'd seen them every year for the past three years, how tight they were at those other two shows, mm-hmm. they were kind of loose in Sacramento. They played they played Short Straw, which I'd never seen them play, which was cool, yeah. um, you know. And I've successfully dodged the song Fuel live. Like the setlist was great, um, you know. They did battery. They opened. They came back out with their encore as battery, which is fucking great. You know, they were good, but they weren't very tight. You could tell that they were, that the roads kind of wearing out them. It's time for them to kind of. You know, they're probably thinking ahead to Christmas because it was right before Christmas. And they want to get back to their families and everything. Have fields put on a little bit of weight. You know, no, I get it, have, James. I, I do that too. Um, they put on a little weight. They just seemed like they were they were ready to take a break. You know, these 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 guys are in their mid fifties. You like, they're grinding out like a four year fucking worldwide tour. You know what I mean? And we're on the tail end of it. You know, so right before Christmas, second to last show before they take their break before they get back at it. Um, so they just seemed a little loose, a little tired. And the thing is with Metallica, what's really cool now is if you go to a show, uh, you can. You could well this leg you could download for free the show you were at. They record every show now. That's cool. So if you got you put in your barcode on your on your ticket and you get the show and you can listen to the whole show back. That's awesome. Um, 
And I bought the Fox Theater and the Band Together shows because the Band Together shows was a benefit thing. So I went and the Fox Theater thing I bought because I was so pumped that I like see that show. I needed to need to have that historic, you know, recording yeah. to me anyway. It's historic to me. So I listened to all three of them in a row, and absolutely they were way tighter than those other two shows. Like yeah. way, like, yeah. like, like no question. But also, what could also be different is that those shows were the band facing the crowd. And that the show in Sacramento that I went to was in the round. Yeah. So I don't know if that affects how they play or, or what's going on, but um, I thought it was okay, but I did leave disappointed. I also was not prepared for how expensive, you know, a fucking soft pretzel was going to be at an arena, you know, because I drove out for Sacramento. So by the time I got there, I was like starving, yeah. you know, and I was like, Oh, cool! Nine fifty for a soft pretzel. Really? Yeah, it was so wow. expensive. Man. And not only that, what also was like the one Metallica design I really wanted was sixty-five dollars. I was like, nope, <laughs> no T-shirt for Jeremy. Sixty-five dollars for a T-shirt. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's the Invertigo You Will Be shirt, which is like my favorite. Uh, uh, Ed Justice for All era. Puss head drawing, okay. but I already have a shirt with that on on the pocket. But this was like the full shirt, and on the back it said, you know, Metallica eighteen nineteen. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I was just like, I can't, I cannot spend sixty five dollars on a t shirt. There is, there is no realm where I'm going to spend that much on a t shirt anymore. So yeah, my judge jacket was sixty five dollars. That's a jacket. Yeah, that's a jacket. I mean, that's that's and that's fine. They got to make their money somehow because certainly it's not coming from record sales, but. Uh, you know, and I get it, but uh, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't justify, even though it's my favorite shirt design. And not only that, right before I went to that show, they had put shirts with that on the front on their web store for twenty nine ninety nine. It didn't have the same back, but it was the same front. And I was like, you know what, if I really feel the need that I, that I need it bigger than the pocket print, I'm just going to buy it from their yeah. web store. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So um, now we've talked about Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> Best band that ever was and ever will be. Let's talk about your most, probably most successful band. Dead Hearts. The Dead Hearts. Uh, not the Dead Hearts, just Dead Hearts, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for perpetuating that. <laughs> oh, you're in the Dead Hearts. <laughs> Let's talk about Dead Hearts. <laughs> thank you. Thank uh, you. What, year, what year was Dead Hearts, the Dead Hearts start? 2004. Summer of 2004. And how long had the control, who we will hopefully talk about before the end of this, how long had the control been broken up before you started Dead Hearts? Uh, about a year. Okay, so tell me about the beginnings of Dead Hearts. So the control had broken up, and uh, I had swore to high heavens and to my fiance at the time that I would not ever do another fucking band. Really? I was like, I am <laughs> done. You know, well, at that point, I was 30. You know, yeah. I was 30 years old. I had, I had, you know, done, you know, half mass, no reason, fucking the control, all these bands. And I was like, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not going to do it. Oh, wait a minute. We Before we get to Dead Hearts, let's just talk about re, uh, Reason. Oh, Reason. We forgot sure. Reason. So let's, let's just move it back up and talk about Reason a little bit. Okay, tell, me so, a little bit about, tell me a little bit about Reason. So uh, the uh, former fiancé that I just mentioned who became my ex-wife uh, after post splitting up with her uh, which is like 10 years ago 
um, which was exactly 10 years ago. Um, I was just like kind of sitting around the house. I'd been diagnosed with a bunch of medical problems. And I was like really, really fucking just down in the dumps, you know. And uh, so I tried to get out of that. And I started going to the gym a lot. And I'd, you know, working out all the time, losing lots of weight, and feel good, eating right, you know, trying to get myself out of this funk. And I was like, oh, let's fucking start a straight edge band. You know, every member, but the, the thing is, the caveat of starting a straight edge band is every member's got to be 30 or over because we're going we're gonna to carry the torch, you know. So it was me, my brother, Eric Elman, and Farside, who's sitting in the other room. And uh, <laughs> we did this strange band called Reason. And uh, it was kind of an extension of No Reason because three of us were in No Reason. And we'd asked Farside to play bass in No Reason. And he said no. So <laughs> we figured, well, why not? We couldn't come up with a better name than Reason. So... <laughs> Reason it was. I think I had a whole fucking sheet of names, and my brother was like, how about reason? I was like, blah, 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 blah. How about reason? Blah, blah, blah. I guess it's reason. So we, we became we became reason. Um, and uh, we recorded a demo, which Farside became obsessed with, and uh, wouldn't fucking mix. He's like, I got to make it sound perfect. And we're like, dude, just, just make the songs come out. And he's like, so. The, this is a note. I have probably eighty mixes of that record. You've never heard. <laughs> yeah, I know. He he just he would he just kept mixing it. He was driving himself insane. I never want to record my own band again. Yeah, because he was recording his own band, so it was driving him. He he put him in a state that was not easy to deal with. Um, so he keeps mixing it, and here it is. We recorded it in February. I remember we were in the studio like the day after Valentine's Day, right? And I remember we like we did all the vocals, we got it all ready, and like he wouldn't even give us a rough mix to listen to. And I, I thought like the performances were pretty good on it. I, I I recalled, but I hadn't heard it yet. So now it's getting like you know we've been a band for like eight months, and like we haven't played we hadn't played a show yet because I I wanted to make sure we had a demo before we played a show, and then my brother was finally like. Let's just book a show so Farside has to come up with a final mix. That's what we did. We played uh, with Rhinoceros and No Love's Lost. Like I, I think I did the show at Mohawk. It was pretty good. Yeah. Um, then we played – the goal was one show a month. That was the goal of the band. We're going to play a show a month. So we did the first month we were actively playing shows. We played Buffalo at Mohawk Place. Then we played the Westcott Center in – Syracuse with uh, Mindset, I think Black SS, and then we played the last Get Back Up show, and uh, me and my brother just kind of weren't feeling doing it anymore, so we broke up, we quit. <laughs> me and my brother both kind of quit. We're just like, yeah, we're done. And that, that was that was reason. Nice and simple. <laughs> so how long were you guys a band? The whole period of time were you a band? Uh, I would say we were probably a band almost a year. Okay. Yeah. Because we started in like January of, well, was it 2010? 2009. Huh? 2009? Maybe it was 2009. Yeah. We started like early out in 2009 and then... Because, yeah, it was like spring of 2009 we started, and then we broke up in December of 2009. Mm-hmm. 
This was almost a year. It was probably like 10-ish months. I'm practicing in Eric's attic. That was weird. When he lived in... Custer? University Heights, yeah. Really? Well, we, we practiced at three places. We practiced at above your old studio at first. Yeah. Then we moved to the studio spaces next to Mohawk Place. It was in Mohawk Place, in the attic of Mohawk Place. Yeah, yeah. And then we started practicing... In his attic. In his attic, yeah. Yeah, we were we were we were a band long enough that we practiced in three different places. Over a year's time. <laughs> we practiced in my studio a few times too. Yep, yeah, we practiced in the studio as well. That was three shows total? Three shows total. And that's it. Never made a t shirt. Sold our demos. Really? For, never made a t shirt, sold our demos for a dollar. Interesting. What's funny is after that band broke up, I was yeah. at a show at uh, at the funeral home. Yeah. I was at the uh, alert um, peace show, and some kid came up to me and was like, "It's like, dude, that Reason demo, best straight edge band I've ever heard." And I looked at him. I, I said, "I was like, I was like, have you ever heard a straight edge band?" <laughs> I, I love those six songs. Yeah, those songs are good, but come on, there is like, come on, there's like forty years of incredible straight edge bands. <laughs> Fucking reason. We covered a reason song, Black Axe. I'm sorry. Which one? <laughs> the Oath. Oh, The Oath. I wrote that song. Yeah, we covered that. Yeah, yeah, we I covered wrote that the one. Oath. And we played with Snapcase. Can we play it another time than that? Or is that it? I think we played At the Joint Show? Maybe. I don't remember. Yeah. But uh, in between there, I was also in a band called Old Ghosts with a bunch of the guys from Dead Hearts after Reason. We don't gotta talk about old ghosts. Yeah, because they're mean, still together. Yeah, they're still together without old me. Ghosts, but we don't have to talk about old ghosts. Yeah, you know that's that's beyond you. What? Something. Huh? <laughs> they they moved beyond you. They have moved beyond. <laughs> anyway, I started another band called Old Ghosts. I wrote the first two records, and then I didn't really want to be in that band anymore, so I quit. And uh, they kept going, so I was like, oh, okay. And they're still going to this day. They're still going. They're still playing. So I was like, okay, cool. Um, and that had the singer from Dead Hearts, who we're going to talk about right now. Oh, yeah, Dead Hearts. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> it also had the drummer of Dead Hearts, and now it has the guitar player of Dead Hearts, too. That's right. Bass player of Dead Hearts, Tom, plays guitar in that band. Yeah. So that band has always been three members of Dead Hearts. It's just different three members now. Okay. So let's get back to talking about Dead Hearts. Yes. What, where were we? Well, we can start over. All right, so, yeah, so I was... Uh, I swore I would never be in another band again after The Control, and um, that Christmas in between the time that The Control broke up and, uh, well, after The Control, I started a band called Dark Path 2, but we don't need to talk really about that. We played one show, and uh, that was really when I was like, I'm not doing this again. (laughs) Um, In between The Control breaking up and Dead Hearts forming, my ex had bought me an acoustic guitar. So I would just sit in my living room playing an acoustic guitar. And I'm not playing, like, jingle jangly stuff. I'm not like, you know, anyway, here's Wonderwall. You know, I'm not, like, doing that kind of stuff. Like, I'm, like, playing, like, how I play. And I started writing hardcore songs, and I was like, oh, my God, these are good. <laughs> and, like, you know, you, you get a sense of pride. Like, something, like, when you do, like, a piece of work or you do something that's, like, especially good or that you know is, like, going somewhere you you kind of feel it like uh when you're in college and you write like that really great term paper like you know you just knocked it out of the fucking park Mm -hmm. like i was sitting at my i was sitting in my living room on a couch and i wrote a couple songs and i was like 
I wrote two songs. I wrote a song called Forever and a song called Bright Lights, Bird City. And I was like, oh, I've kind of knocked it out of the park with these two songs. And uh, I was like, okay. Now, Forever, when I first wrote it, was a straight edge song. Um, but I, like, changed two lines and made it into a relationship song. But anyway, so I was like, okay, I got these cool songs written. And uh, Pauly, who was uh, this kid who I barely knew, but I had met him through – I used to work at a hotel and – my friends used to just roll through that hotel and like hang out all night, and just random like people from shows would like roll through and like hang out all night, and eat free donuts and drink you know free orange juice and stuff. And uh, this girl Erin Hogan had brought this guy who she's friends with Paulie t- to hang out one night, and he was like, "Oh, I'm in this band, a legend." And I was like, "Oh, cool!" And he gave me the demo, and I put it out. And I was like, "Wow, your band sounds a lot like the Control, dude." <laughs> and like. Eventually, they Sweeper replaced Paulie in that band. They sounded totally different, but their demo was like sounded a lot like my whole band. And the way he played guitar on it sounded a lot like how I play guitar. So I thought maybe I could get this guy to play guitar in a band with me because I've written these songs and like they seem kind of special. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, I and, and the, the, the funny the same around the same time. Um, the alleged as they currently existed with uh, Kid Sweeper and uh, Rich and Aaron Adkins singing, uh, they called me up and they're like, hey, are you interested in playing second guitar in our band? I was like, well, I'll come down to a practice. He's like, I only know the demo. And Sweeper's like, we don't sound like that anymore. So I was like, okay. So I went down to their practice and heard what they were doing. I was like, okay, it's not bad. Maybe this, this would be okay to be in. Then I go home and fucking... Sweeper sends me a message that he wants to throw out Aaron and have me play second guitar. And we're going to look for a new singer. I'm like, oh, okay. Then the next day, Aaron calls me and says, listen, man, I want to throw out Sweeper and have you be the only guitar player. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, I'm not joining a band with this much drama. And I've only like watched them practice like, you know, six new songs or whatever. So I messaged I, but their drummer was really good, this kid Rich Hogan, who I actually hung out with this weekend um, in Philly. Um, was really good. And so I messaged I messaged Sweeper. I said, hey, man, can I have Rich's number? I kind of want to see if he wants to jam on some songs with me. I'm not interested in being the alleged. He's like, yeah, I'll give you his number, but he's not going to want to like play out of town and stuff because I know all you do it with your bands. I was like, okay. So I go, Rich, I have some songs written. You want to come down and check it out? He's like, uh, okay. So, because that's kind of how Rich talks. These impressions are awesome. And uh, <laughs> he's like, so he comes he comes down and um, the last Can I Say show was like that weekend. And Can I Say were like cool guys. Like I knew them. They were a little younger than me, but like I'd done some shows that they had played. I'd seen them a bunch of times. Um, I wasn't particularly fond of the slap bass um, that their bass player did, but I thought they had energy and like, I, I I thought Derek had a really good voice. His timing was an issue, but I was like, I could train that. I could kind of teach him how to like sing in time a little better. And uh, I liked his voice a lot. And so at that show, I was like, hey. Uh, at that point, I'd already jammed with uh, – I'd gone to Paulie's house to his living room and sat down with my guitar and his guitar. I taught him the two songs that I had. He showed me a song that he had, which is a song that became Dear Jade Letter that I wrote the lyrics for, but he wrote the music for that was like really, really good. And I was like, fuck, this is going to be a good band. Like I knew, like I heard those songs and I said, this is going to be good. I know it. 
Um, and I told Derek about it, and I was like, the only thing is, I'm going to play guitar, Paulie's going to play We don't have a bass player. And Derek goes, I'll ask I'll ask Tom Mayer to play bass. He played guitar in, in can I say. But Tom's not really a bass player. He's a guitar player. So, But Derek's like, but I have my dad's bass, so he can just use that. So we all got together in the practice space, and after our first, you know, practice, we had three songs. You know, I gave Derek the lyrics. I showed him how to sing it, and it was like the, there was magic instantly in the room. There was, you know, chemistry between all of us, and it was off to the fucking races. Like, within a few weeks of that, we recorded our five-song demo, played our first show. Um, you know, smaller record labels already wanted to do seven inches, and we're playing out of town with Kill Your Idols, and, like, you know, we're you know, this was like our first show was like in July or August of 2004. And, you know, already we're booking our December to January tour, 2004, 2005. And, things, and we sold 350 copies of that demo in Buffalo. You know what I mean? It's not like it's not like we did mail order for them. Yeah. We sold 350 copies of that demo in Buffalo. Uh, and, uh, you know, at first I didn't know how it was going to go because, like, people were, like, excited. But our first two shows were kind of like – Oh, okay. And uh, then we played like Dunkirk and we started playing the South Towns and all those young kids immediately connected with what we were doing and, our, and they started coming up to shows at Buffalo. We did our tour. We came back from the tour. We played with H2O and it was like, oh, hey, I'm suddenly in a popular band. Like, like, like. I'm in a popular band. Like, I, I, I don't know what to do about it. Like, Gus here was going to put out our 7-inch. Didn't really work out, but Gus is going to put out our 7-inch. Um, you know, that got bailed out by – who bailed that out? Was it round, round two who bailed that out? Or Stefano? Yeah, which – it was Stefano. I was involved with that, but then, yeah, that kind of – I just didn't really – that's a whole separate – Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so – so our demo was really good, and somebody wanted to do it as – a bunch of people wanted to do it as a 7-inch. Gus was friends with all of us, so we're like, okay, Gus, you can do it as a 7-inch. And I was just like, well, we could kind of skip a step. Like, we're going to go right into, like, doing records. And, and um, so then I remember, uh, you know, we were, we were playing a lot of, t- show, out of town shows. We were doing it right from the get-go, and people were responding, which was great. Um, and then – Labels wanted to put out our records, wanted to do a 7-inch for us, like Martyr Records, who I don't think that label's around anymore, but at the time they had just done Modern Life is War and a couple other things. Um, Martyr was interested. Stillboard Records was interested, which is Jamie Haypreet's label. Um, Livewire Records was interested out of New Jersey. Uh, and then uh, this label that I'd never heard of called State of Mind. And I talked to Livewire a lot because the one guy at Livewire was really, really, really excited about the band. I loved his enthusiasm. So I was like, had a mind to do it. And I was like, okay, well, we have a, we already have another bunch of songs recorded. Like we did our demo. Like when the, the first, uh, the first six months that uh, Dead Hearts were together, we went to the studio three times. I recorded, recorded different songs. We recorded, uh, the demo, we recorded the seven inch, and then we recorded three songs that different recordings of went on No Love, No Hope. Uh, and then there's a their Euro CD, which has everything that Hadalak recorded for us. Mike Hadalak did all those recordings. Like all 10 songs are on that CD. Yeah. So there's different versions of two song, three songs off No Love, No Hope. Um, we were like doing our thing and like 
Livewire was like really excited. I wanted to be on that label because like I was friends with the first step and like that label seemed really happening and real hip and really cool. And uh, I was like, all right, well, we're going on tour in December. Can you have this out by December? The guy's like, dude, it's October. No fucking way. We're thinking like May. And I'm like, I'm like, all right. And then State of Mind hits me up. I'm like, and we had a talk about the the band. I was like, I was I was like, for our first EP, whatever label that could have it out before our tour, that's, that's who we should do our first EP with and not promise any more records. And everyone was kind of like, yeah, that's not a bad idea. And uh, State of Mind Records from Long Island was like, we could have the CD. For, this is when CDs still were a thing. CDs are like dead now, but CDs were still a thing for another year and a half, two years after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were like, we could have the CD version out and to you before you leave for tour. We sold like five boxes of 25 CDs on that tour. Like we fucking, I mean, we played a festival in Florida on that tour and we sold like everything we had. Luckily, the label was there. We were able to get more for the return trip back to Buffalo. Um, and it was just a crazy, like, excitement. Like, everybody was excited. The guys at the band were excited, you know. Uh, and then we did No Love, No Hope. We recorded No Love, No Hope. And we I set that around. Um, now, from the get-go, when we did our original demo, Ferret had reached out to us, Ferret Records, and said, hey, we're not signing anybody new right now but we like what you're doing because I had sent them a demo because Eric, uh, Andy Williams told me to send them a demo. And then we played CBGBs right around the time we recorded No Love, No Hope. And uh, the guys from Fair came out and we played really well at that show. As a matter of fact, there's a live 7-inch, all, all good things come to an end, which is our live at CBGB 7-inch. Um, so you can sound, we played really well at that. He really connected with it, really liked it, kept in contact with us. We recorded like No Love, No Hope a couple of weeks later. I sent him the, the final mix of that before it came out. They were pumped. Also, Victory Records was reaching out to us. I sent it to Victory, and Victory was like, we kind of think that um, you have the appeal of a Rise Against and Comeback Kid put together. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so <laughs> Ferret and Victory both wanted to sign us, but Ferret had already come out. Now, we had played in Chicago a bunch of times, and I didn't see – maybe Clint came out, but I didn't see anybody besides Clint at the at the Chicago shows. But the Ferret guys came to our CBGB show and made a conscious effort, you know, made an effort to come up and talk to us and say, hey, we really dig what you're doing, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, you know, I'm getting calls from Clint at Victory being like, Tony would like you to fly out to play for him. And I'm like, that's weird. Why did he just come to our fucking show a month ago? <laughs> Like, you know, and uh, so anyway, we signed to Ferret, and uh, we uh, did an LP that people seemed to like. <laughs> At first, they didn't in Buffalo, but eventually they did. Like, yeah. there was like there was like a six-month lull in between uh, the, uh, the album coming out and uh, people responding in Buffalo. And it was one of those things where we just had to wait for kind of a scene reset. Like, the people who had, like, gotten into us early on. Um, now two years later we're kind of like I only like the old stuff <laughs> and then young kids that were just starting to get into hardcore and stuff really connected with the LP and then it was you know there was like a six month lull where our shows were just like kind of okay and then poof, it like blew up again and we, we rode that out until the end of the band um, you guys went to Europe too right we did great shows in Europe yeah we did 30 days Twenty nine shows in Europe. Was that your first time in Europe? It was. And it was fantastic. 
Yeah. It was a good experience. It was a very good experience. I mean, some of the shows in the UK were kind of crappy. Yeah. Uh, but all the shows in Germany were like insane. Like insane. Like How many stupid. shows did you play in Germany? Uh, I think we did 11 shows in Germany. How big is Germany? It's not very big, but people roll out. They go wild. There's yeah. videos of some of the shows on, on YouTube. And there's like, really? It's like awesome. Yeah. I need water. You can take one of those. Yeah. Oh, I don't need a water. I'm good. Okay. I'm, I'm good. All right. Um, so what year did you go to Europe? Uh, we went to Europe. We flew out Thanksgiving Day 2007 and got back uh, Christmas Eve 2007. Okay. So when did the band when did the band break up? So, like, we got back from that tour, and Josh, our drummer, our second drummer, who replaced Rich, he quit, like, the minute we landed. Yeah. And we had, like, we had like a booked show in, uh, like, we were playing with, like, Killswitch Engage and Every Time I Die, like, Orlando. And Josh is like, yep, can't tour anymore. Got to take care of my own shit. See ya. He has really? some stuff going on. So I was like, okay, that's weird, but whatever. He was a little weird on the European tour at times, so I yeah. don't know what was going on. But, you know, so I was like, I was like, okay, you know, okay, whatever. And uh, Rich agreed to come back and play for that show. He drove down with us. Rich is great. Rich is yeah. a, Rich is a great guy. And uh, so we went we did that one-off show with Richie. But Richie's like, you know, I can only do this because I'm on break from school. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm in school, I can't, I can't be back in the band. He's like, I could do this one show because it's in January and it yeah. considered my schedule. And we're like, that's cool, whatever. And so we started this search for drummers. And uh, that we couldn't find anybody locally who, yeah. like, fit the bill. Mm-hmm. Although, you know what? Zach Deach came down, and Zach um, is a, a okay drummer, and I think he could have done it, and I think it would have been okay. Um, but I was so gun-shy after what he did with Daggermouth and all that stuff, um, so I was, like, afraid. He's supposed to sing for Daggermouth, and he never got on the plane because he got worried that it was going to compete with his job at Zoobies. <laughs> and it's ridiculous now, but it's like little kid stuff. Like, he's like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah. Um, so I was just like, you know, really kind of gun shy about him being yeah. in our band. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he wasn't like at the level that Josh and Rich were. Josh and Rich are both really good drummers. Mm-hmm. And Zach would have been able to fit the bill, but I didn't. I was worried about how songwriting would go because he could like kind of play what they played. Uh, we had drummers show up who are not prepared. We had drummers show up who could not fucking play. You know, Jesse Moscato came down, and that probably would have been like great for like a press release or something. But he was like two hours late. You know, typical Jesse stuff. And I love Jesse, but mm-hmm. you know, he's always he. You know, he'll be late for his own funeral. You know what I mean? Like it's just he operates at a in a space and time outside of everybody else's. Um, so that was like, okay, you know, and it's like, okay. And uh, this kid from Vermont ended up playing drums for us, and he just really did not fit the vibe of the band. He's a nice enough guy. Um, but, you know, people from Western New York have a way about them, and nobody else in the country has a way like we do. Mm-hmm. And him from being like kind of like a kid who had never been a touring band and being from Vermont, um, it just it just it just we didn't gel, we didn't gel. We gave it a good old try, I and mean, he was in the band for you know eight months or you know seven months, and we drove out to Vermont, practiced with him, and then we'd flip flop. So uh, the beginning of every month he'd come out to us, and the end of every month we'd go out to him and spend a weekend, and we'd write songs and work on it. And then you know if we had like a weekend of shows, depending on where it was, we would go to him. 
practice, they'd go to the shows and play it, or he would come to us, practice, and we'd go to the shows. So, Did he um, – How? well, he was in the band at the end when you played your last show, right? Yeah, he played the last show, yeah. Well, all three of our drummers played the last show. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, did, did he record anything with you guys? No. Okay. He's listed on the – the final release, yeah. the CD version of the final release, yeah. uh, because he was in the band yeah. when we broke up. But no, it was Josh played on the last stuff. Okay, because it was recorded. It was recorded before we went to Europe in two thousand seven. Okay. The band broke up in September of two thousand eight. So, I got a memory of that kid. I never met him, but I'm like, this kid takes liberties with the bass drum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember him adding double bass where there was no double bass. He, like, that bugs the shit out of him. He added a lot of double bass. We had to tell him to calm it down. Yeah. Because he would like, it was way worse until we got to where we were. I mean, it'd be just like double bass for every, it's like every mid-tempo part. It'd be, instead of like, I'd be like, and I'm like, dude, just chill. We're not fucking Slipknot. Just chill. Was he in other like, bands? Kind of like what you said. I'm like, this kid doesn't fit. Yeah. yeah, and like I never met him. Could have been sweet as pie, but yeah, he just sweet as pie. He just it just didn't it just didn't work. And just cheeks, but now we oh. we actually wrote an extend we we wrote an extended intro that went into our intro specifically so he could use double bass. Yeah. Not, not a double bass kind of band. No, it really was not. But yeah, he 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 did. He was he just didn't he just didn't mesh with us. And I think you know not only was the situation where it was like. We were losing a lot of money because if you remember at that time, uh, we were so we had we hadn't had a record come out in a while. The live at CBGB's record was supposed to be like the new record we were touring on at that time because it was supposed to be the holdover until we recorded our new LP, which is called Ghosts. Yeah. And um, it it didn't it was delayed by state of mind, delayed, delayed. It was like okay, fuck, we're going on tour with no new record. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been two years since our LP came out, and there were still some good shows, but there were some shows that were real bad. And if you remember that summer, gas went, the summer of 2008, yeah. gas was over four bucks, you know, and there were shows where we were like getting paid $25, which we weren't used to that. We were used to getting paid okay and having like decent shows by that point. Mm-hmm. And here we are on tour and some of the shows were like really bad. And that guy wasn't making anything any better by not being like one of us, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that weighed on Derek a little bit. So it was fairly easy for him to quit. So is that why you broke up? Because of the drummer situation? Basically? No, no, no. Derek was just like, listen, I'm, I'm going to turn 30. I was already, I was 34. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, I'm, gonna, I'm about to turn 30, 30. I have nothing. You know, I call home and like my wife's like bummed out because like I'm on the road, but mm-hmm. we're not doing anything. Like we're losing money yeah. and, you know, I'm not working. And he's like, I, 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 I don't think I can do this anymore. Matter of fact, we had just been given the go-ahead to walk from our Ferret contract because Ferret was like, listen, music industry's changed since you guys signed. We can't honor our contract with you. And we're renegotiating contracts with a lot of our bands. Mm-hmm. And we'd like you to do that. But if you don't want to do that, we'll let you walk scot-free from the contract. So we're like, okay, we'll walk scot-free from the contract and sign with another label. Mm-hmm. And so we were going to sign with, with Eulogy in Florida. Yeah, uh, It was the day we got the final contracts after my uncle, who just passed away recently, who, who was our, who was our like, contract lawyer, who had looked it over. We just finalized like what the agreement was yeah. and what was going on. And... Uh, the day we were supposed to sign it, he looked at it and he quit. <laughs> oh, really? He's like, yeah, I'm done. So that was that. No hard feelings. I mean, I understood his reasons. I mean, it wasn't, you know. And it was like one of those things, like if we couldn't go at it full time, it wasn't really worth 
doing. Yeah. Because, you know, we I think all of us really wanted that band to be super successful and be our, you know, job or whatever. And it, mm-hmm. it just, you know, it, it was an almost but not quite. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it almost get there, and then we'd step back. It almost get there, and then it would fall down. It almost yeah. get there, and then it would fall down. So, so you guys played a couple of reunion shows. Was it 2012? 2012, yeah, we did. Uh, we did two shows to benefit the Alex Rice Peace Park Foundation. Which I think that park is open. It is, right? yeah. It's, it's, it opened last year. Yeah, it opened yeah, last yeah. year, last August. Yeah. So that was good. Like it feels good to like. Because, like, I'm not a big reunion show. I mean, I'll go to reunion shows, obviously, but, like, I'm not big on playing my band's reunion shows. Like, Playing with Rage did a reunion without me. Mm-hmm. You know, I refused to do a control reunion when we got asked. Mm-hmm. Or when I got I got, I got asked. I said, no, I won't do it. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, the, that's the correct answer, but. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I don't even think you ever even told me that. No, because I said I wouldn't do it. I was like, there's no sense in asking anybody else. Uh, I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to do a reunion. Like, I, I'm not into reunions. But the way we were approached with the the Dead Hearts thing mm-hmm. uh, was, you know, hey, you know, we're trying to get traction for this 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 peace park for this girl who was run over by a drug driver. She, you know, killed in the prime of her life. You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, this guy got away with it. He got away with it, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, James Corasani was his name, by the way. He killed a young girl and only served like 11 months in, uh, not even in federal, in county lockup. Fucking bullshit. Anyway, um, so I thought, you know what? It's a benefit. We're not taking any money. It's for a good cause. You know, when I was a young kid, I was never a good skateboarder, but I tried and I was a skate, you know, I skated and I I think that's a good, healthy outlet for kids' creativity and aggression. And I thought there's there was never any real skate parks available to us when I was a young man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there was like border transitions in Niagara Falls, but that was just owned by a bunch of other skaters. And it was like kind of sketchy going there and stuff. Um, there wasn't like a good public skate park you could go to. I thought, fuck, that's a great idea. We met with John Fulcher. He told us what was going on. Um, and I said, you know what? This is a cool thing to be a part of. Let's do it. And we did it. We So in mm-hmm. Jan- uh, I'm sorry, in December of 2012, um, we did a, like a warm-up show that was kind of more low-key uh, at the funeral home. And then uh, we had the big show at Wasteland Studios, um, which was five people away from a sellout. I think if the weather had not been a blizzard outside, it would have uh, gone over, over capacity. Mm-hmm. But there were people from like there were people that were driving in from the Midwest and stuff who uh, got stuck in like Cincinnati and outside Cleveland and just didn't make it in. People who were driving from very far away from Alabama and stuff like that who didn't didn't make it because of the, how bad the snow was that day. Mm-hmm. But the show is still amazing. I mean, the DVD yeah. you watch the DVD, it's like oh shit, yeah, it's a good show. You know, felt bad for Derek because he he got sick after the. So there was a day in between. Originally, we had planned. To do Friday, Saturday. Um, but there used to be a band called Abusing the Word from here. And Aaron Weiss from that band was like, we're doing our, our reunion show that weekend. And I was like, dude, this has been like booked for us like for three months before we announced it. Like we knew we were doing this over the summer. We announced it in like October or September. You know what I mean? Like I'm like, I'm sorry we're stepping on your toes. You're booking your reunion show six weeks out. But. And uh, he was like, uh, well, you guys got to move your show. I was like, we don't have to do anything. But if you guys want to do that Friday, we'll move our, our warm-up show till Thursday. 
And I kind of wish we had done it Friday and Saturday instead because that day off for Derek, he got sick and the the big show he, he performed with like the flu or something. Like he was, he was in pretty rough shape. But it was a great show either way. I mean, it was, it was awesome. And I have a DVD of it, so. Sick, bro. Yeah, dude. Speaking of sick, I got sick from that show. Your brother got sick from that show. Yeah, everybody got everybody sick. Everybody I know who went to that show. I didn't go to that show. I was sick. in Albany. Yeah, you went to the, the show at the funeral home, didn't you? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were a couple of people who only got to go to the, who couldn't go Saturday. Yeah. Um, who only went, to, but most mostly it was this, you know, same crowd, just four times bigger. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And the videos of both those shows are odd online. You can watch them. They're great. Cool. What we did was we had uh, at the show at the funeral home, we had Richie play the first half of the set, and we did like older songs. And then Josh came out. We did the the, the songs that Josh wrote with us, and then we did the opposite at the uh, at the big show. No Vermont guy. No Vermont guy. Okay. Just checking. Yeah. I mean, I'm still I still talked about Facebook or whatever. Vermont guy. Yeah. Yeah. No name. His name's Jake. His name's Jake. I think he has. I think he has some kind of health issues or something. So sorry to but, hear that. Yeah. Okay, so we have one more band to talk about that we didn't talk about before. What's that? The Control. Yeah. We ended it no reason. Right. On the first interview. Sure. This is it. This All is, right. This is the climax, and we have another member of the Control here. Yeah. Look at that. How about that? Hey, you know what? And Farside was. Towards the end, was just as involved in the inner workings of the control as I was. Really, I'd say, I would say from the beginning he was. It's yeah. the only time I think I've ever allowed that to happen in a band. Really? Well, Tom, Tom was pretty instrumental in, in, in Dead Hearts too. I mean, like I recorded one of your, your last guys. That yeah, Tom yeah. Was very involved in every. We tried. We tried a lot of stuff on Tom's word <laughs> that didn't work at <laughs> those recordings. You gotta try. Yeah, I know. I know. There's no wrong way to get to the end. But yeah, um, so first, why don't you come closer? So you, can, you maybe you can, you can. As you don't get me sick, dude. Maybe a, a little spacer there. Yeah, <laughs> and I used hand sanitizer before I came up. So, so I think at the end of the last, the last interview, we talked about the end of no reason, and the breakup of no reason. So, post breakup of no reason, how did the control form? Pretty much, pretty right, pretty much right away. Because if you read. The liner notes for the vinyl version of our LP, I already say I'm in the control. Oh, and? In, in, the, in the No Reason LP. Oh, really? Because it came out a couple months late. Okay. And in the liner notes in there, it's got like kind of like the story of, of No Reason. And then it says, you know, I, I'm in the control now. And uh, the, El- the Elman Brothers are in They Live and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was relative, within a few months. But when we first started, we weren't the band that we like I had like a couple heavy riffs because mm-hmm. I really liked the swarm. Remember the, how good yeah. the swarm were at the yeah. time, and uh, we were, we practiced a couple times in Fireside's basement. Oh yeah, but his mom wasn't going to stand for that. No, yeah, that's <laughs> when I lived in Kenmore. Yeah, yeah. we lived. Yeah, so he lived in the, he lived in this house, but it was like you know it was like a neighborhood where the houses are like you know twelve feet apart from each other, yeah. like literally, like because it's like an older suburb. So like the houses, so you can't just blast the ears off of fucking, you know, the Huxtables next door or whatever. Because it's, it's just, there. yeah. So, um, and it was me at Farside and this kid, this kid Cack Brian Sider, who's a great dude. I wouldn't say he's the greatest drummer, but I would say he's the greatest dude. He's the king. Uh, he's the king. He is. I'll t- we'll tell that story. One time, <laughs> we had a diner with Cack, and uh, 
we were eating some food and there was a dead bug. And we were, me and Fireside were like, hey man, if you eat that bug, you're the fucking king. Forever. Forever, you'll be the king. And he's like, okay. And he just ate a dead bug. <laughs> I also saw that guy chug eggnog and then immediately vomit everywhere. He's the fucking king. He's up for anything. He's up for anything. You could talk. And not only that, women loved that dude. Like, he'd walk into a place and a girl would be like, hey, you want to go sleep together? And he'd be like, okay. <laughs> like, he's like one of those guys who kind of pinballs, who used to pinball through life and, like, it would work out for him. It was amazing. Like, it's like an amazing thing to see that guy. Not only that, he uh, he was in Sacramento. Uh, his, he's, he's got a wife and uh, they... Uh, his, her relatives live in Sacramento, so uh, we we hung out. We went and saw Quicksand uh, awesome. uh, last year, so that was pretty cool. Seeing him, I hadn't seen him in a long time. I bought like four cars from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's oh yeah, he's a car salesman, car right, right. Um, but I bought a car him from him. Yeah, so yeah. there you go. Like Brian Snyder, he's still the king. He's the king of fucking cars. Northtown Subaru. Everyone. <laughs> Shout out Northbound Super. So, um, yo, the vibe we got going now is way better than the rest of the podcast. This should be it. But anyway, um, so it was the three of us. And I remember I had this riff that was like, and it was like this heavy riff. And like we would just like play that and play that and play that and play that and play that. And it never really went anywhere. So then um, we couldn't practice at Farsight's place anymore. So then we started practicing at this place called the metal pit the fucking metal pit <laughs> it was this, it was just like this like old tr- like concrete block train station that some insane guy owned and they had practice spaces in there and they had some shows there like like for a very brief amount of time like five months oh, if that Blaisdell, where was it? yeah, yeah some Blaisdell. it was like I thought it was Lackawanna yeah it's Lackawanna Blaisdell yeah yeah it's all South Town stuff by the by the by the old Ford plant well I guess it's still the Ford plant yes. not the old Ford plant I mean, it was, was terrifying. Yeah, it was like scary and dark and half the electrical didn't work and there were no lights and there were bands who like rented practice spaces there and locked their stuff up and came back and it was all gone. <laughs> um, we rented by the hour. We paid like 25 bucks to go there and make really loud noise. And that's when we started We started kind of transitioning into like um, from like trying to be heavy into being like a, like an early 80s kind of hardcore band. Um, and like a more punk than hardcore band, but you know, just as punk as we were hardcore. And uh, I used to, <laughs> so I used to hang out with uh, this girl, Ari, and her friend, Shar. And Shar was, like, obsessed with this kid, Kevin. Like, obsessed with this kid, Kevin. Like, oh, God. Who I kind of knew, but I didn't know him that well. But she was like, you should get Kevin to sing for your band. He has a wonderful voice. And I was like, "What?" She's like, "His voice is wonderful. You should, you should have him sing for your band." Like Papa. I was like, "I was like, <laughs> Kevin who?" She's like, "Kevin McElligot." I'm like, "Oh, I met that kid a couple of times because uh, I had gone to see uh, the Subhumans in Pittsburgh with a bunch of people, and he was on that road trip." So I was like, "Oh yeah, I've met that guy before. He seems pretty cool." So. We get Kevin. We we ask this guy Kevin to come down. We're like, okay, you need to learn a seven second song. It was a seven second song, like a negative approach. So he needed. I, we were like, we're like, hey, learn these three songs. Come down and sing them, and we'll see if we want you to band. He comes down. And he's got a great voice. Like, holy shit, this guy's great. He's gonna sing for our band. We practice. We did that at my parents' basement. So then we figured out like practice basement. So then a couple weeks later, I go to Shar. I go, Shar, you were right. Kevin does have a wonderful voice. <laughs> and she starts laughing. I'm like, what? She's like. 
Oh, I'd never heard it. I just told you that because I think he's hot. <laughs> so, so that's how Kevin got in the band, and uh, that was a lot of fun. That band was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a lot of hard work, and it kind of seemed like it was for naught at times. But like, do we do we try him out in your basement? Yeah, we tried him out in my parents' basement. Parents basement. I, I, we didn't have a practice space, and Metal Pit was done, so I had to make arrangements with my parents. Like on like a Saturday or Sunday afternoon for them to like go to the farmer's market or something. Because I hadn't lived at home in a long time at that point. So I had to like make arrangements for them not to be home to like set up in the basement because like to, to like practice. And, and uh, that's how we did it. Then we got a practice space at Discovery. If we stayed at the metal pit much longer, we would have been dead. Yeah, yeah, that place was... <laughs> you could come out of there and blow your nose, the cleanest would be black. Yeah, jet black, jet black, like no question. And uh, Like, that ain't right. Early on, right. so we, 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 we tried out Kevin in my parents' basement, but then we moved to Cack's house, and we practiced at Cack's mom's house. He didn't even live there. Remember that? Niagara Falls. We practiced at his mom's house. and His, his in mother's like his, house in Niagara Falls when she wasn't there, yeah. Yep, in his we childhood were, bedroom. We, we recorded the demo in that room. Part of it. Part of it. And then part of it in my living room. Part of it in your living room. Part of, the living, part of it at his... No, no, no. We scrapped the stuff we did at his house. We recorded the demo in the basement of Discovery, in your living room, and at Nate Borman's house. Was it? Because there's a, there's a scrapped recording that we didn't use from, from Cack's place. I have all that stuff. Yeah. I have a, I have a ton of um, control stuff that's never... Never seen the light of day. day yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, we recorded a demo. People seemed to like it, and uh, our shows in Buffalo kept getting better and better and better. At first, they weren't because people wanted No Reason Part Two, and it definitely was not that. Um, it was instead of a late '80s '90s thing, it was a early '80s thing. I think, especially at first, um, and uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. We played a show once. Um, so, okay, I'm going to tell this. So we played some good shows. We had some bad shows. Our shows in Buffalo were pretty good. Um, one time we played in Raleigh, North Carolina. <laughs> and uh, we, he's already laughing because he knows where this story's going. So we played the night before with Norfolk, Virginia, with this band called Facade Burn Black, which Craig from Time Flies played guitar for. And, uh, you know, this is like early days of the Internet, so it's not like you can just like pull up Google on your phone and be like, what is this place? So we knew we were playing this this place in Raleigh. And he goes, if that's the place I think it is, we're not playing. And the guys were like, come on, Craig. It can't be that place. We're going. So we all follow each other. We drive from Norfolk, Virginia to Raleigh, North Carolina to play the show. We get there. And the Facade Vern Black van pulls up in front, sees that it's the place that Craig doesn't want to play. And turns around and leaves immediately. They don't even get out of their van. They just drive and we're like, uh, what's fucking going on? Because it's literally a fucking shack. Like in the woods. In the middle of the woods, in the mountains outside of Raleigh. Yeah. And it's fucking winter. It's Nothing around for miles. Yeah, nothing. It's January, right? And so we're like, okay. We're going to play this show. And then we find out it's like 25 bands or something. Like It's like an absurd amount of bands. And they're from all over. And um, fucking like the, the first step was playing. Yeah. The first, first step, step was playing. Uh, melee. Melee play. Well, we'll get to the we'll get to melee. My, my first impression of the show, I got to tell the story. As we walked up, there was a girl with her trunk open. And out of her trunk, she was selling booze 
cigarettes and condoms. <laughs> this is true. And and there was a sign that was how they were going to pay the bands. <laughs> because the people who come to these shows, they will go in town. They won't bring any money with them to the sh to pay for the show because they'll just go in town and buy booze, cigarettes, and rubbers. Apparently. <laughs> Um, so if they shoplift them all week and bring them and, and put them in the trunk of their their Volkswagen <laughs> and sell them to the people, then they can collect money to pay the bands. It's a good system. It's a good system. I, I see that they sure. found a workaround, right? But we're like, uh, and then they're like, yeah, you guys are going to play out by the bonfire. And I'm like, it's fucking January in the mountains of Raleigh. We're like at a higher elevation. It's fucking cold. I'm like, I am not bringing my guitar into this cold to fucking play. Like, this is fucking ridiculous. And they're like, well, some bands can also play in the living room. It's not a living room. This is a fucking literal shack. There's like a wood, there's like a fucking wood-burning stove. Yeah. Like old-timey stove, you know, from like, like fucking the good, the bad, the ugly or something. Like sitting in like this tiny little room. Like well, that's where, like 19 people lived in this place. Yeah. There was a dude who lived in the tree outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like absurd. I can't remember the name of the place for the life of me, but uh, it's a real place. And I saw the flyer online, too, for the show recently. And I, I went to Google Maps, and, and it's not there anymore. Um, but uh, now it's just like a field. Um, but like, I was like, fuck, this is insane. And so we played in the living room. The first step played in the living room. And other bands were like played outside, and people just started getting fucking naked. Like all, they're, they're, okay. There's like a naked dude with a bar, a, 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 a bottle of fucking like hundred proof alcohol, and a fucking like burning log in his other hand. He's like blowing fireballs, punk naked, off the roof of the shed. And then he lights his hair on fire and falls off the fucking roof. It's like, what is going where? I was like, we were like in some kind of, we were like in the middle of like a Roman orgy that all these fucking hardcore medical, metalcore bands just happened to be playing, right? And like. I got a lot of pictures. He's got a lot yeah. of pictures of naked people. People are like naked circle pitting around this bonfire and like jumping over the flames and like getting their butt hair burned and stuff. And I'm just like. Oh my God, where the fuck are we, right? So then it's, you know, so then it's the end of the night. And uh, it's time to pay the bands. <laughs> and so they come up, oh, how much money do you guys, they come up to each band. The girl was naked while she well, was I'm, I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. <laughs> so this this girl who was earlier selling the booze and condoms and cigarettes out of the, that they had stolen out of the back of her car is now naked, walking around the show. And Kevin, and also there's a lot of there's a lot of alcohol and a lot of you know <laughs> drugs and stuff flying around this show. I'm not saying that Kevin partook in that, but he was. I can tell you that he was fucking drunk. So Kevin's a nice guy. At the core of his being, Kevin is a very nice person, and he's trying so hard not to look at this girl's breasts, like, and she's like, <laughs> and he's like wasted. And, like, he's, like, kind of embarrassed because he doesn't know what's going on. And he's not the guy who usually settles up at the end of the night. It's usually me who settles up at the end of the night. But she comes up to him because everybody thinks the singer is, like, the guy in the band and every band. So she's coming up and she's, like, talking to him. And he's, like, trying his best not to, like, look at her naked visage, you know. And she's, like, well, how much money do you need, you know, for gas or whatever? He's, like, uh, uh, $50 is okay. Doesn't do any investigation. So she gives him $50. And another band that played, they got $50. Another band got $50. 
So then I'm like, $50? We spent a lot of money getting here. We got a lot of dog So I go to find her and I go, I go, hey, you know, <laughs> naked girl, what, where is, you know, how much money did you guys collect at the show? And she's like, oh, $650. I'm like, zoinks. Like, how, how did you guys get so much money? And she's like, yeah, I gave you guys 50 and I gave this band 50 and I gave that guy 50 and I gave this guy 50. I'm like, cool. She's like, but Melee, um, they're from Boston and that's really far. And when I asked them how much money they needed, they said, well, how much do you have left? And I said, $350. They said, yeah, that's how much we need. So I gave them that as I see the fucking taillights of the melee van. Like no one else has left the show just like hauling ass down the fucking mountain pass towards civilization with their $350. I was just like, motherfucker. They just fucked every band. Like every band could have probably gotten like 100 bucks instead yeah. of like 50 that got paid that was from out of town that wasn't from there. I was just like, what the flag fuck? What a shit show of a night. The only thing that was cool though was that Mike Gifford was there and I hadn't seen him in a long time and he came out and he bought like a record and a shirt and I think that was the only thing we sold. Like nobody cared. Like everybody's there to get drunk and fucking jump off, light their hair on fire on the roof of the building. So that was probably the craziest show we played. I remember uh, there was a kitchen a refrigerator with graffiti all over it. And you open the refrigerator, and there was no refrigerator. It was a tunnel yeah. that went into another room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a bedroom full of, like, bunk beds, like, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had to go through the refrigerator to get to the Yeah, it wasn't even a refrigerator. They, they had used the refrigerator door as a door to their bedroom. But it was in the kitchen. It was so, like, what a fucking... Like, if I saw that now, I'd be like, oh, I'm following Facade Bryn Black. Like, they, they, they knew what they were in for. They were just like, fuck it. We're driving this six hours home. Like, we're not doing this. Didn't they try to pay us in condoms, too? They originally tried to pay us in booze and condoms, yeah. Amazing. They tried to put it, and I was like, dude, whatever. I, I, I'm straight edge, and yeah, I'm not using one of these fucking things. <laughs> Yeah, never use them. Well, no, I was, I was, I had a girlfriend back <laughs> home at the time, so I didn't, I wasn't partaking in such, such frivolity. So let's get back on track here. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so the control was a great ride. We had, we played a lot of fun shows. Yeah, we played one show. It was in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what did the control put out? Oh, uh, we did a demo, a cassette demo. Mm-hmm. We did a 10-inch that the CD version had the songs that weren't on the 10-inch as a as a as a as a bonus on the CD. Um, we did two seven inches, uh, sidearm and the forgotten, mm-hmm. uh, and we did an LP which never came out on vinyl, only came out on CD because we broke up. Called Glass Eye. Mm-hmm. So how much touring did the Control do? Uh, we did a lot actually for. The, how unpopular the band was everywhere besides Buffalo. We gave it a good shot uh, because I know in the time that Steve Kerfied was in the band, um, you know, it was well, we played well over a hundred shows with him in the band. At, at that time, everyone just wanted to tour. Yeah. I yeah. just wanted to play constantly. Steve wanted to play constantly. Yeah, I wanted to play constantly. I just wanted to get out there and do it. Now that we signed to like a big punk label, I thought they were going to like, back us and like not be a clown like the guy who owned that label was like kind of a clown like i thought like it was gonna be like we were gonna like because like what i was just trying to think how i think i was like 24 yeah that band started in 99 so i was no you would have been a little younger because i was 24 
23 when it started. Yeah, I was like 24, 25 when it started. 25. And uh, we broke up in 2003. 2003, yeah. Four years? Four years, just about. Yeah, almost five. So that was 23 to 27 years old for me. Yeah. Okay. That was one of my touring years. After that. Yeah, but we, we did a lot of touring. We sacrificed a lot of stuff to, like, do it. Did I really thought that. I didn't have shit going on. Yeah, well, yeah, neither did I, really. But I thought I thought that, you know, we were, like, label mates with, like, anti-flag and shit. Like, I thought we were yeah, going to, like, reap. chicks. Yeah, I thought we were going to reap some of those benefits. But, did you play any shows with those bands? Uh, I saw them once. No, we did, we did, we, we did, we did not. So, I'm. The control. Uh, no, 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 go ahead. So the control <laughs> broke up because. Okay. Do you want to tell that story so, about the end of the control? Yeah, yeah. Well, so. Um, <laughs> I don't even remember why we broke okay, up. Okay, so Kevin. Kevin was. was, And I remember because we, we had a lot of conversations about this. So Kevin felt that like the focus of the band had kind of skewed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he wasn't. He was having a hard time kind of reconciling, like, what we were trying to do. Like, mm. I know that, like, we played Warp Tour one summer, and he was really bummed that we did that because we kind of, like, accepted the show without consulting him. And he thought he was – Warp Tour really went against his punk rock ethos. I think I booked that one. Yeah, he booked that one. But that's fine. Whatever. It was a great sh- – it ended up being a really good show for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were singing like it was like, oh, holy shit. There's a bunch of 15-year-olds who love our band, you know, who don't go to see us when we play Custer Street or, you mm-hmm. know, 33 Tyler or whatever. So, um, and he had just broken up with his girlfriend at the time, who has been a lo- his girlfriend for a long time, and I handed him the lyrics to The Forgotten, which is about, like, a breakup, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he had to sing those songs, and everybody thought that he wrote that song about his ex. And he had, I had written that song, literally, I had written that song about an episode of Sex in the City. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. Literally, I would sit, okay, so I worked at the same hotel for like six years and I would sit up all fucking night, because like they would let me tour and I worked overnights. I would bring my guitar with me to work and sit on the couch watching TV playing guitar. Like, from like like 1am to like 5am every day. Like, that's how I was able to come up with the fucking... ridiculous riffs that some of the some of the some of the control stuff has mm-hmm. uh matter of fact little no fact two songs by the control that are like there's two songs that have a similar riff to that in it i got that because i couldn't play the fucking creed song right the can you take me higher <laughs> i play i couldn't play it right and i ended up coming up with a separate melody in the same vein and those became Meat and potato riffs for two control songs. Because I would just watch TV all fucking night playing guitar. So, like, stuff that I saw on TV would be, like, my subject matter for the lyrics. So, like, Marco Barton goes and sh- is a day trader, goes and shoots up his office. I'm going to write a song called Sidearm. I watch Sex in the City every night. Fucking, uh, what, was the name of the na- what was the name of the main character? Carrie. Carrie. Carrie Bradshaw. Carrie Bradshaw. Go, there's two restaurants with the same name in the city and she goes to the wrong one. So she thinks all her friends abandoned her on her birthday. So she's, there's a scene where she's in the shower just crying with mascara right down her face. And I was like, oh, Carrie. And I wrote a whole fucking song about <laughs> the despair that Carrie, Carrie Bradshaw was feeling, you know, and I 
whatever. And I gave it to... to You're more to, of a Samantha anyway. Yeah, I really am. I really am more of a Samantha. <laughs> I love that show. I don't know why. I don't know. But anyway, the movie sucked, by the way. The Sex and the City movies were terrible. Stan, Stan focused. Okay, sorry. Anyway... Um, so uh, I wrote that song, and I, I, I think Kevin like, and that became one of like our signature songs, like, and I think Kevin had a hard time singing it because uh, he had to go out there every night. And mm-hmm. even though him and his ex were long done by the time the band broke up, it was one of those things where it's like it probably still kind of put him in that time and place. And uh, I had run out of ideas by the time it was time to write the LP. Like I couldn't come up with anything that would like stick. That like he almost killed me. Yeah, that like <laughs> so like I wrote like maybe two or three things for that, but like then it became like group effort, and fucking Steve, our drummer, had all these crazy ideas. Like the lyrics will repeat, but every time the music will be different every eight measures. I'm like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> like we still gotta find songs in here. Like we gotta we gotta write songs. Like that he wanted to like write these like fucking crazy things and like the chorus will be the same. There'll be a chorus, but the music will be different every time. I'm like, no, Steve, I'm not. Me and him butted heads a lot of times, and a lot of it he would try to provoke me. Like he would show up at the practice space with like two forty ounces and start drinking as soon as we start practicing. I'd be like, dude, we're here to be focused. Like fucking don't do this. And uh, so we all started to write, and then uh, Farside was like, maybe Kevin should write his own lyrics. Which he wrote some great lyrics, but I think that really took Kevin out of his comfort zone for where he was in the band, like what his role was. Like he was the guy who went crazy when we played. And I remember there was a couple times where Kevin actually pleaded with us, like, can we go back to where it was early on where Jeremy was writing everything and the focus was all. and Because we were trying anything to get this LP done. And Kevin ended up quitting before we even recorded the LP. He's like, I'll do the LP and then I'm out. And... We thought, well, that's good. We'll have a good singer on the record. Then we can just get somebody to sing for the tour. That's fine. That's cool. I mean, it's pretty much what Dagnasty had to do with Can I Say. You know, Dave Smalley sung on the record, and then Pete Corner is the one who really toured on that record. And I loved Kevin's lyrics. Yeah, yeah. The his stuff he came up with, I think. Like, nobody heard it because nobody ever bought that record. Yeah. And if they did, they didn't sit down and read the lyrics. Yeah. But I think uh, the stuff he did was... Was like, was was good. It was really good and very different. Than B- very different than how I write. Very different. Yeah. Like by the time we got to the LP era, I was writing, you know, because when we started, I was writing very like early '80s hardcore style lyrics, and then as we progressed, I started writing more about emotional stuff and stuff like I did with No Reason, and then went into Dead Hearts. Um, but he was like on another level. Like yeah. he was right. Like he was. You know, it was, and it was, they were good lyrics. It's just the song. I, I personally, I don't know how Bill feels about it, but I feel that the songs weren't there. Um, I think it was a too many cooks thing, too many cooks spoil the broth. Um, I think the opening track, Ant Hill, is really good because I think that what we all brought to the table for that song, the chemistry worked, but the chemistry didn't work on a lot of the other songs. And they just kind of were like, okay. And uh, the recording experience was not a very good one, I would say. We were sleeping in the studio at night. Yeah, it was not optimal. That's when you went to Brooklyn to record? Yeah, yeah. The Atomic Studios yeah. in Brooklyn. With yeah. The, uh, Dean Baltanis and, like, uh, Matt Henderson and Mike Dijon was there. And the guy from one of the later guys from the later lineups of Vision. And they were all really nice. They were really trying to get us to get, like, the best stuff we could. But, you know, we couldn't afford to get a hotel, so we slept in the studio for 10 days. 
and didn't shower for 10 fucking days and like ate shitty food for 10 fucking days. You know, I put a lot of pressure on myself to make that recording good. And I think I was making decisions in the studio that I had no business making. Yeah, absolutely. There was, it was, like I said, it was, it's just, it was like. And, and honestly, the guys who were engineering that record, like I became an engineer later. Yeah. should have said, kid, no. Well, they did on a couple things. Yeah. But not on everything. And, and, uh, like the mixing was done like at the last minute. Because we the board making, fried. Like, we were yeah. making yep. changes like on the fly that what we should have done is taken our time and mixed it later. Yeah. It, it, the record would have been a lot better. But also there's a song that we recorded out there that never saw the light of day. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm telling you, I got a ton of control stuff. But, well, because the riff, it was like. I'm just going to mount. It was like. That became the intro to No Love, No Hope by uh, by uh, Dead Hearts. But it went. I just played the riff like at like halftime. Like well, yeah, yeah. But, it, <laughs> but I, I used that I because that was never that that riff that I had written was never. Uh, it was supposed to be the album opener. It just fell so flat that we got rid of it. Um also, the lyrics may have been about, like, murdering somebody and burying them. I don't know. I think that was one of the few that you wrote the lyrics. Yeah, it was. Well, I wrote the lyrics to that and... Um, two songs on the record? Two or three. Yeah, it was that one. That one didn't see... Because it's just the takes weren't very good, so we, we buried that song. We, we ditched it. Um, and then I was like, well, I wrote that riff, so I'm just going to use it for something else. And it sounded good. It, it really worked. Slowed down for Dead Hearts really good. Um yeah, I wrote the lyrics to that that fucking that city song song about Buffalo being a pit. Then I wrote like five more songs about Buffalo being a pit for Dead Hearts. <laughs> so at the time, I was just like, "Get me out of this city." It hey, took me another out. took me another ten fucking years, but I got out. So get back to the breakup of the band. All oh, right. So Kevin told us he was going to quit. Sorry. So uh, Kevin Kevin told us he was going to quit. We recorded the LP. We did our last couple of shows yes. with Kevin. It was time for the LP to come out, and it was time for us to find a new singer. So we started doing auditions for singers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we tried out a couple people. And um, we tried, I, I want to say, uh, Jay, Jay came down? Jay. Fucking Jay. Jason. Jay Draper. Draper, Draper yeah. came down. He tried. That was, like, not good. Um I, I feel like some of the people that tried out were fine, but they were like just trying to add their own thing. And yeah, well, which honestly they probably should have, but yeah. it didn't work. Aaron Weiss came down, and I really liked him, but I didn't like his voice. Like I liked like how like what he was putting into the songs, and like his swagger was really good. I was like, oh, he's got the front man swagger, but I was like, but his voice isn't there, right? And Jay came down, his voice was like, woof, no. Uh, some other people came down, and then this kid that we didn't know shows up. This Chris kid. I knew him a little. Yeah, and like his voice sounded great. Mm-hmm. Like, matter of fact, I remember when he he and he came prepared. He knew the songs. He started singing, and it was so loud over our PA because his voice projected so well that like I fucked up because mm-hmm. I was like, holy shit, that's crazy. And so his voice really worked for what we were doing. Like, he had the voice. Mm-hmm. He had more of a modern look than we did. So we were like, okay, this guy, you know, he had, like, plugs in his ears, which we were still really hip at the time. And, you know, he had lots of tattoos, which some of us only had, like, one or two tattoos, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And zero. Yeah, well, you, have, you still have zero. <laughs> now I have a lot, but at the time I still only had one or two. And uh, so we practice with him a couple times, and we decide he's the guy because he seems all right. You know, he's telling us he's friends with all these guys and other bands, and we're like, oh, that's cool. We're friends with other guys in bands too, but you're friends with guys in bands that we're not friends with. So this is this is this sounds like a good idea. And uh, turns out it was all bullshit. And so the day after we make the announcement that he's going to sing for us, the guys from Go Kart Records send us a thread from the Long Island Hardcore Board that's about two or three weeks old that says, "Who remembers Chris McHale, the scourge of Long Island Hardcore?" <laughs> and I'm like. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> and they're like, hey, this is the guy. Like, read this. This is the guy you got singing for your band now. And I'm like, well, he seems okay to us. Maybe he's just kind of being blacklisted by some... Uh, he came to practice and told us he had some terminal disease. Yeah, he told us he had terminal disease. <laughs> and and like, he's like, guys, guys, he like pulls this aside. Yeah, like, I got it. I got to tell you this. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> I have. I, I have, remember what the hell. I don't remember. It's like I have ulcerative colitis in my throat. And like it's something like ridiculous. We're all just like, oh, dude, we're sorry. He's like, but you know, I want to give this a go. You know, he show up in practice. He start crying. We're like, what the fuck is going on? But it was like the tour was booked. I had busted my ass and booked a really good tour. We were playing Gilman for the first time. With like over my dead body, like bigger bands. We were playing with Strike Anywhere and some some of the places out west. We were playing, you know, three or four shows with Holding On, My Life Is War, and Kill Your Idols in the Midwest. Yeah. Like we were playing like big sh- like this show. This tour was going to be very very good. This is the last Holding On show in the, Minneapolis. Yeah yeah yeah. The last Holding On show in Minneapolis. Like these these were going to be like big shows. And we're like we were very very excited. Mm-hmm. And I had really worked really hard to make the best tour we could possibly have. And I almost killed myself putting that LP out. Yeah, he almost killed himself because he, over, just like he did with the Reason demo, he overthought every aspect of the LP. Not only just the recording, but also the writing. Like, he'd be like, no, we got to do this. I'd be like, ah. I remember having an argument with Kevin. I was like, I wrote like a song about George Bush. I was like, oh, worst president ever. I was like, he's the new Hitler. He's like, really? George Bush is the new Hitler. <laughs> I was like, he's like, listen, I don't like George Bush either, but come on. Let's let's look at this realistically. What kind of, we can't write lyrics like that. I was like, oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> you really had some block going on. I was, I was, I was grass, like during the whole time. Cause I had just written like so much stuff for the band. Like I had just written like the vast majority of the ten inch, all of the the, the two seven inches, like you know we might have worked on the arrangements, but the music and the lyrics were all mine. So like by the time we got to the LP, I was like, I was gassed out, and I was grasping at anything I could to try and like write something or come up with an idea, anything that and, and it just wasn't happening for me. Um, which the same thing happened for the control or for Dead Hearts for the LP for Bitter Verses, but. Um, I was really good at writing transitions at that time. So like Paulie and Tom would have stuff written and then I would write the transitional riff. And like we ended up writing a really great LP. But our chemistry was a lot better than the controls chemistry. Because Farsight and I had chemistry, but like Kevin and I really didn't like musically and Steve and I definitely didn't musically. Um, but anyway, so this kid, Chris McHale, we leave for tour and um, – he uh, 
pretends he has illegal reptiles that he doesn't and sells them online. He's living with me at this point. He's living with Farsight in my old room. Because he has nowhere to go. Because he has no place to live. And I had just moved in with my new girlfriend, who later became my ex-wife. And, uh, you know, I noticed something was going on. I think, you know, there were some cracks. Because, like, I had, le- I had left some stuff behind in my old room that I was going to pick up later. And one of them was my Baphomet necklace that I had made myself. So very, very, very recognizable necklace. And he showed up to practice one day wearing it. And he had, like, colored it in with black marker. I was like, hey, man, you're wearing my necklace. I made that necklace. You know, he's like, no, 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 I bought this. This is mine. <laughs> I was like, uh, that's my necklace. You must have found, I must have left that behind in a drawer in my old room. Because that's where he was living in my old room. And he's like, no, 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 this is mine. I, I, I bought this necklace. I was like, I just let it go for the sake of the band. Like, I, I'm usually not one to let stuff go. Uh, but I was just like, okay, he's got, that's a little weird. But, you know, we'll deal with that another time. Then he, he sells illegal reptiles that he doesn't have to some guy on the internet who from a, uh, from a post on a message board um, that has Farside's phone number because at the time he was the only one in the band who had a cell phone because this is 2003. Um, he calls Farside and starts being like, I need my reptiles. I'm going to come to your show. I'm going to fucking take it out of your ass or whatever he's going to do. Which is exactly the call I want to get in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On my phone about Chris McHale's stolen reptiles. Yeah. And so Farside finally is like, gives him the phone. It's like, you need to talk to this guy. And you need to deal with this. And then Chris starts, like, that starts the spiral of him being, like, like insufferable. Like, you can't be around. Like, one second, he's, like, just normal, cool dude. Next second, he's crying. And now he probably had mental illness. I get that. <laughs> but, like, he's, like, trying to manipulate, like, everyone around him. Like, and, like, he's telling us so many lies. And, and I'm just, like, this is not adding up. And then, like, after one show, he's, like, I can't do this. I quit. And I was, like... I had just booked a six-week tour throughout the U.S. that was going to be amazing. So I was like, dude, please don't quit. Just get through this tour with us. You know, maybe these problems that you're having right now, maybe they won't seem so so great in two days. You know, let's just get through it. He's like, I'm just going to go for a walk. And he disappears for the whole night. All right? Remember, yeah. And that was the night that Farside says, after this tour, it's either him or me. <laughs> We were staying at some girl's house or something. Yeah, we were staying at a house in Western Mass. It was after the only good show of that first couple of shows. We played with the Prowl and stuff. We were going in the house, and he's like, I'm just going to walk around all night. I'm like, see ya. <laughs> so he, he takes off. And me and Farsight are like laying in like, like, I think you were laying in a bunk bed. I was like laying on the floor of my sleeping bag. And he's just like, listen, man, we got to talk about this guy. I'm like, what? He's like, he's like. After this tour is done, it's either him or me. I can't, I can't, I can't deal with this guy. I'm like, all right, well, let's just see how it goes, and you know, and uh, that was in Western Mass. That was the only good show of those first four shows before we broke up. Like, and people were like, "Wow, your new singer is awesome," and we're like, "It's not what anybody at the other three shows said, but okay." But they were really into it. Like those guys were really into it. Western Mass always liked us, so it was it was a good time. And, uh, shout out to the Massholes. Shout out to the Massholes. Shout out to the Prowl Red Reaction. <laughs> Last in line. Um, so shout out to the Flywheel. 
one's gonna know. No one's gonna know the flywheel. But anyway, no one's uh, listening. Yeah, no one's listening. <laughs> so uh, we play Buffalo. The show at Bu- like the control was used to drawing like around 200 kids. I would say by that point at, at, at home, and we did our show, our record release show with Chris McHale singing. You know, he's another record. And hey, dude, and only 65 people show up. So right then, I know. Words out on this guy. Something, something's going on. Like people know. Well, it turns out this guy, like we didn't know until after, but he had like, like, gotten arrested for beating up his girlfriend, like throwing her down the stairs, and, like all this fucking crazy shit. I learned this after. I didn't know at the time, obviously, because I would have been like, "Fuck you, you're out of here." Um, so, hey, dude, their location. The neighbors did not want them there. And they, when they had bands play, the neighbors would be like, no cool, not cool. But 65 kids packed the place. So, you know, it was like, okay, this is less people than we usually play to it, but this is going to be cool. So all the opening bands play. We get into, like, our second song, Cops Swarm In, Break Up the Show. And I'll let Farside take over what happened that point because that was dealing with Chris McHale. I don't even remember. You know, okay, so anyway, I'll tell you. Okay. I may have blocked it. Yeah, so... Chris McHale starts getting into it with the cops and Farside. Oh, yeah, and yeah. so then it finally calms down and Farside's like, listen, dude, you know, there's more on the line here than your ego. We're doing a six week tour. We're only four or five days into this. We still have to go across the whole United States. You can't get yourself arrested over something that you really have nothing to do with. And Chris starts going off. You're speaking to me like my father. You're not my father. Fuck you. Like starts going off on him. And Farside's just like, what? And did you quit or did he quit? I think we all collectively. Like collectively, we were all just like. We just looked at each other. We were like, just like, we're done. This is not happening. And that was the end of the control. And I. I, I we went out to the van and gave away all our merch. We gave away whoever was every single piece of merch to people who were at the show. Actually, I still have a. Big well, yeah, I, I still had some too because I gave my dad a sweatshirt. But uh, we gave anybody who wanted stuff. We gave them shirts, records, CDs, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went home, and I wrote like thirty emails, like canceling shows. Made a couple phone calls for people that I could. I didn't have emails for mm-hmm. that I'd set up. A, literally. 45 minutes later, Kevin calls me. Yo, man, I'll quit my job and I'll do that tour. Let's just fucking go out. I'm like, dude, I just, I can't do that. Like, we'll look like, we'll look like the most unprofessional dudes ever. Like, we will, we won't, we will, we won't. I was like, I just canceled the whole thing. We gave away most of our merch. Like, it's done. The band is done. He's like, are you sure, man? Because I'm totally willing to quit my job and, like, leave tomorrow morning. I think he just wanted to quit his job. Yeah, and I was just like, I was like, fuck, where was this attitude six months ago? And uh, he, so he, he, uh, yeah, he, he, he said, I said, I can't do it, man. It's, it's, it's over. And then Steve called me, like, ten minutes later. He's like, dude, Kevin called you, man. We gonna do it? We gonna do it? I'm like, dude, we're not gonna do it. He's like, come on, we gotta do it. We gotta do it. Like he's like pleading with me. I'm like, dude, I canceled the whole tour. Like you don't understand. Like, and even the Holy God guys call me the next day. They're like, just come out and do these four shows with Kevin. I'm like, dude, it's done. It's over. Like this kid put the fucking fork in this for us. Like, like this guy had every opportunity to be like the cool guy who was like the replacement singer in an okay band, but instead he just fucking killed it and ruined it for us. Mm-hmm. Never play your hometown in the middle of the tour. Yeah, it killed half mast and it killed it killed the control. You don't want to leave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
like, well, I'm home. It was just, yeah, it's, it's, it was just like yeah, ridiculous. I was like sleeping in my own bed. Like, do we really want to get another singer and go back on the tour we just canceled? Or we could just go back to sleep. And not only that, we, dro- we were dropping off our equipment at the practice space, and my brother and Jared uh, from No Time Left, Gas Chamber, all those bands, they were our roadies on that tour, remember? They yeah. came with us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Poor so guys. they're there for the whole thing. Like they they see the dissolve the, the band dissolving, but like all three of us were really. Into, I mean, I'm still am. I mean, I, I'm not wearing my jean jacket, but I my jean jacket. I have the Danzig fucking skull in the back. Of it. Um, you know, we were like, let's do a band like Danzig, and we're dropping off the equipment, the the control equipment, like the next day, and we already made our plans to do our Danzig band, the Dark Path. So like I was like, all right, on to other stuff. Let's do it. Fucking go, 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 go. Because that's what I do. And yeah, the control was dead. Like very, very dead. Okay. I think, well, you got anything to say, Bill? Uh, nice, short, concise interview. Oh, also, <laughs> also, so a couple weeks after the control breaks up, right? Yeah. Someone posts on the Buffalo Hardcore message board, rip Chris McHale. He got hit by a subway train. But it was Chris McHale pretending to be one of his friends posting on the message board. Yeah, my, my roommate, who's not hardcore at all, wakes me up he, and he lived with us. He's like, oh, my God, Chris is dead. Oh <laughs> Who was that? Uh, Dan Rattel. I don't know if you ever know. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, so you just like – so it gets out and everyone's like, oh, my God, this guy's dead. And then everybody starts going down the rabbit hole and then he's like – we start looking for uh, information. Police blog. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and then he comes clean. He's like, "No, I posted that as my friend. Fuck you guys." And we're like, "Okay." Is this kid still around somewhere? I uh, probably. Who cares? Yes. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm gonna. We're gonna end the interview there. Um, you know, it got a little out of. You could edit it into two parts. We could. Or four. Or parts. not. <laughs> or seventeen parts. <laughs> we'll figure it out. How about um? You? Oh yeah, we've been doing this for two hours. Yeah, just under two hours. Yeah. But uh, where I know you have that Bandcamp page with all your stuff on it. What can you tell people what that is, or what's for tuning? What, no, for well tuning and for your other stuff. Okay, so um, tuning on uh, Facebook and Instagram is tuning HC. Mm-hmm. You know, like tuning hardcore, but tuning HC. Mm-hmm. And uh, we took that name by the way because nothing better was available. <laughs> uh, and it's a great it's a great avail song. It's a really great Avail song, and uh, Metallica, before every show, plays in the tuning room, so tuning was kind of on my mind, and uh, we couldn't come up with anything better. So um, and so Tuning HC, and then on Bandcamp, it's just tuning.bandcamp.com. Uh, um, Dead Hearts does not have a, uh, a uh, Bandcamp, but uh, the control does, and it's controlthe.bandcamp.com. Yeah, I sent you a link to it. Like three years ago. I gotta read that shit. <laughs> Dude, we, we refused to make a MySpace page. <laughs> Fuck MySpace. Yeah, I did a bag a band camp where you should get all the records for free and the live set from we played when we played at Burt Ramen with What Happens Next is up there too. I lived it, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. We actually play really good at that show. Anyway, um so control the dot band camp uh uh, Half Mast has a band camp. Uh, Jesus Christ. You know about that, too? You gave me the shit to put up on it. I was going to say you should just tell people about that JDS band camp. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I got to expand that to put tuning on it. But, yeah, there's uh, 
if you go to uh, if you type in 25 years uh, JDS, there's a band camp that has a, a smattering of all the bands I've been in in 25 years, except for tuning because I got to update it because I uploaded that like four years ago. Uh, but you can see all the stuff there and uh, yeah. I'm uh, JDS Control on Instagram. You can find me and send me a message. I'll send you whatever you need. I was really hoping tuning was going to be performance art. Like you're just going to get up there, <laughs> tune for 40 minutes, and then be like, thank you, good night. <laughs> he is probably the 35th person to tell me that. <laughs> it's such a good idea. No one has done it. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> a lot of misfit shows for that. <laughs> All right, thank you for coming down. Thank you for coming all the way from from California to do this interview. <laughs> yeah, you know, dude, I had to, you know, I, I felt like I owed it to you after you lost the last one. <laughs> Until next time, thanks. <laughs> Later. Right. And thanks to Farside for uh, being a part of this. That was yeah, cool. That was great.